0: Ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit.
1: Big
2: Boys Play Hey folks, this is Justin Rosero of the Place to Be Podcast. You are listening to I'd say number uh co number one best podcast in the world, and that is of course where the big boys play. Parv, Chad, take it away boys.
3: Hello everyone, you're listening to Where the Big Boys Play. I'm here with Chad as ever. How you doing, Chad? I'm doing great. And today uh we have a guest with us. You may know him as Ricky Jackson, but his real name is Kelly. How you doing, Kelly?
2: I'm doing great. Great to be here, finally.
3: <laughs> yeah, and, uh, what I mean, uh, this was on the cards, what, about six months ago, right? We first talked talk uh, about...
2: Yeah, at least. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't long after you guys started your podcast that I uh, threw out the possibility of me actually doing this show. Yeah.
3: So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's become a reality now. Um, just, before, uh, just before we get into your background, Kelly... Um, this is uh, not really wrestling related, but uh, as at the start of this uh, recording here, we were delayed a little bit because I was waiting for my kettle to boil. And I'm having a cup of tea here. But <laughs> a friend of mine said recently um, that in the, in the States, they don't have electric kettles. And I was like, get out of here. What are you on about? They don't have electric kettles. They were like, yeah, next time you watch TV, look out for whenever they make a cup of coffee or something. And they never use an electric kettle. It's always like on the stove or whatever. So, I wanted to ask you two guys, is, is there any truth in that rumor that is uh, that is going around, that you don't have electric kettles in the States? Or in Canada?
0: Uh, Kelly, go ahead, because I can yeah. tell you, more. this may be a surprise to you, but uh, neither me nor my wife uh, drink coffee or tea. All right, uh, So, no hot beverages in uh, in my household. <laughs>
2: Well, we definitely have electric kettles in Canada, but um, <laughs> usually when I do tea—and that's not too often—I just use it on a stove kettle.
3: You use a stove. Any any any. Reason? So we have both, though. Yeah, and Chad, if you were to make a hot drink, uh, like, uh, would you have an electric? I mean, do you have? Do you possess? No, I mean, drink? yeah, we don't have
0: one. I, I mean, I think traditionally it's uh, mostly stove.
3: Mostly stove. Any yeah. reason for that? I mean. It seems bizarre to me that like, you don't have electric cows.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I know. I mean, I know in the office, like the coffee pot is one of those kind of uh, four cup coffee yeah. uh, pots things that makes. Or uh, a couple of people in my office have a Keurig. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah. those, but uh, yeah, they yeah, also. Yeah make the coffee, but, yeah, like, any, uh, tea or any hot drink like that, it'd be on the stove. I don't, I mean, I don't know why.
3: All right, well, we, we will, we are here to discuss pro wrestling, so I'll get off this topic now, but, uh, the, the last thing I'll say is, um, uh, a cup of tea, right, has milk in it, <laughs> which is, uh, something that, when I, I mean, in my, in my travels in the States, nobody seems to understand that. So, you, nobody brings you milk with the tea. Um, it tends to uh, be, that like... That seems weird. Yeah, that, that's, uh... And, like, not... Not just when I was doing C 6, like, in New York and Chicago, they don't... As standard, they don't bring milk, either.
1: Yeah,
0: no, that's not traditional down here, either. So
2: uh, I'd, I'd say in Canada, most people drink tea without milk, actually.
3: Without yeah, milk, yeah. Without, I, I think, absolutely. Yeah, I, without milk. I think it's the norm, uh, there. I did, but, in a lot of, like, coffee-drinking nations, I guess, um, tea is, you know... You, Think of tea as like lemon tea or herbal yeah. tea or whatever yeah, totally. stuff it is, but you know, I'm I'm having a good English cuppa here. All right, <laughs> so <laughs> Kelly, uh, you're from uh, you're from Canada. Why don't you tell us a bit about your wrestling background, man?
2: Okay, sure. Well, I'm living in Vancouver now, uh, but I grew up in Calgary. Um, so I got into wrestling when I was about eight, nine years old, and um like a lot of wrestling fans my age, I uh, got into wrestling in 1986. Uh, it was actually the hype to WrestleMania two that got me hooked. Um, specifically, Mr. T being involved in WrestleMania two got me hooked because I was a big A-Team fan, and suddenly he was on TV in a boxing match with Roddy Piper, and yeah, one thing led to another. By the summer of that year, I was pretty much totally hooked, uh, watching. uh, In Calgary, of course, we had Stampede Wrestling. So on Saturday afternoons, you could watch, right after the cartoons were over, uh, on the same channel, Channel 7, you could watch Stampede Wrestling, followed by an hour of WWF Wrestling, which was basically the superstar show. But in Canada, it was called Maple Leaf Wrestling, technically. um, Because we have a thing called CanCon Canadian content regulations where we have to have like a I don't know if you guys have heard of this, probably not Chad, maybe you part But uh government regulated uh Canadian content in all media, basically.
3: Wow. Uh
2: it's kind of a funny thing. I had you that anyway, was, I do
3: have a Canadian friend
2: that. who told me about that. Yeah. So uh and also I was really into the mags, the wrestling mags right away. Um At that time, there was tons to uh, choose from. Just not the after mags. There was also other uh, independent-style magazines, wrestling magazines, just uh, probably at least a dozen monthly magazines. Um, I was into the toys, the the figures, the the statues, the plastic statues, LGN wrestling figures. Had those, had the ring. I had a Roddy Piper shirt that I wore quite often. Uh, I'd say Roddy was probably my first favorite wrestler. Um, along with Tito Santana, Ricky Steamboat, um, because of Calgary, Owen Hart, right from the get-go. Um, I uh, was a big fan of him, the British Bulldogs. Uh, the videos, Coliseum videos, were readily available in Calgary, uh, so I could watch all those. Um, the AWA was actually on TV in the 80s in Canada, but it was always in a different time slot, different day sometimes it'd be on in the morning some days it'd be on at, you know the middle of the night um Saturdays or, or Tuesdays it was always shifting around so it was hard to uh, follow the AWA what, what,
3: what was the channel like the ESPN
2: uh it's called TSN in Canada it's basically the Canadian version of ESPN even oh. down to the same uh music uh for Chad We know this sports center uh, we had the same show it's called sports center with the same uh theme music um so it's very much just a carbon copy now of ESPN. But it, it uh, originally it was, it was independent in the 80s. But uh, yeah, it was the same show that would have been on, or the same AWA show that would have been on ESPN in the 80s. Um, and I think in, in the States it was the same uh, with it being shifted around in different time slots and stuff from what I've heard. Just a tough show to follow. But I do remember watching quite a bit of AWA and liking it a lot, uh, The Midnight Rockers. Uh, I was a huge fan of those guys right from the start. Um, as for Crockett, uh, my only outlet for Crockett or uh, the NWA was uh, the wrestling magazine. and to the credit of the wrestling magazines, they told such a good story you know of the characters of the feuds of the angles that you could follow it along you could follow along quite well despite not being able to see a single second of it. Um, which was very frustrating. I, I can remember begging my dad there was um, in the wrestling magazine, sometimes they would have order forms for various uh, NWA tapes. And uh, I can remember specifically the order form for or 86 with the uh, famous scaffold match between the Road Warriors and the Midnight Express. I desperately wanted to see that match because I couldn't conceive of it. I mean, I saw pictures of it in the magazines and I, like, I have to see this. I can remember begging my dad to, to put the money up for a copy of that. It was probably like $50. <laughs> a lot more expensive than, uh, things would be these days. And he refused, of course. <laughs> so I was denied access to the NWA for, or WCW for another probably four or five years. Um, yeah, there was a few tapes you could get. There's one called Lords of the Ring, which had a bunch of, um, sort of 1983-84 era Uh, Crockett, but also world-class. It had the Flair Von Erich uh, title change on it, Uh, the uh, Piper-Valentine dog-collar match, and the Flair-Race cage match from the first Starcade.
3: Did you guys use use PAL format, or did you use the same format as uh, they do in America? Because that was one of the big things uh, when I was involved in tapes, is that you you, um, you can't actually play uh, a... in the types of players we had here you couldn't play a U.S. tape in our machines because we had the PAL format.
2: Yeah, U.S. and Canadian tapes are the same but I can't. I couldn't play. Um, I, went, I was in Europe for the first time in 2000 and I bought a couple movies that I uh, hadn't been able to find in Canada for whatever reason. I bought them in Dublin I think and I wasn't aware that they wouldn't play in, in, in a Canadian VCR. So I had to get them copied over, dubbed over, um, to a uh, to be able to watch them in in my VCR.
3: So take us into the night here, Kelly. How did you? Uh, yeah. How, how did you progress as a
2: fan? Well, after WrestleMania five, actually, I took my first sort of break from wrestling. I, I, I don't know. For some reason, I, I guess I just had been watching for a good three years at that point, and. Maybe it was Hogan coming back into power. Not that I totally hated him, but it seemed like maybe they were going back a step. Anyway, I, I just I lost interest for a few years. Um, I caught bits and pieces. Um, I had a friend who got the uh, pay-per-views, actually, from a uncle who had a satellite dish or an illegal hookup of some kind because pay-per-views weren't available in Canada until '94 and WrestleMania 10. So he would always have, you know, a day or a week later, a, a tape of WrestleMania six, VI, WrestleMania seven. I can remember watching at his house. Some of the others probably like a Survivor Series, SummerSlam, but it wasn't until ninety one, sort of the fall of ninety one, when Flair came to the WWF, that really got me interested again because I'd been reading about Flair for years and how the the wrestling mags always had. Lay on this pedestal as the greatest and better than Hogan, better than Savage. And and so being able to see him for the first time really was interesting. Um, Around the same time, uh, Jake Roberts turned heel and I really got into that feud he had with uh, Randy Savage. And uh, Bret Hart also uh, was pushed as a singles guy around the same time. And my closest friends at that time were all wrestling fans, so it just turned into this, for the next four years or so, 91 to about 95, I was just totally wrestling crazed. Probably the almost, I would say, the peak of my my wrestling fandom in a lot of ways. Because not only was I watching wrestling, we were going to closed circuit shows of the WWF shows. We were going to, uh, there was a local promotion that followed Stampede after Stampede collapsed called uh, Rocky Mountain Wrestling that uh, Chris Jericho uh, wrestled on when he was very young and Lance Storm and some others. So we went to those shows. We had a backyard wrestling thing uh, in my friend's backyard that we videotaped on a camcorder. We wrestled on a trampoline. Uh, it was called the TWF, the Trampoline Wrestling Federation, and uh, that's actually where the Ricky Jackson name comes from. That was my name uh, way back then. Uh, I was Mister Excellence, Ricky Jackson. And did, uh, did you wear a mask? one of the lead heels of, of the TWF? Did Did you wear a mask? As Ricky no. No, no. <laughs> I was more like a Mr. Perfect, Rick Martel, model Rick Mar the model Martel, <laughs> cocky, Rick Flair even. Uh with a bit of Bret Hart too, because by that time Bret Hart had become my favorite wrestler. Um but other than Hart, I was mostly into heels at that time. Uh like uh the original Drunk the Clown. I loved him, uh Razor Ramon, Flair, uh Shawn Michaels when he first um Started as a single seal, um, and that was sort of, I guess, the the feeling at the time in a lot of ways. Um, you know, in the early '90s, where you know people were starting to sort of reject the the '80s uh, cartoon baby faces and, and started to go for the heels. Uh, so yeah, and that, this is when WCW also began to trickle in. Um, we could get it on TV finally um, around '91, '92. Um, TBS was finally available, but I only had a, one friend who had it. Uh, nobody, it wasn't until about 94 that it became common for almost every family to have TBS as part of their cable package. So, of course, I didn't get to see WCW on a regular basis um, until the very end of the, the pre-Hogan years. I guess when it would have been when Flair was back as Booker and they did the last uh, Steamboat run. Right uh, around, around the Spring Stampede, um, and that was the first, actually the first pay per view, WCW pay per view you could order in Canada, it was Spring Stampede, and we ordered that. Uh, so that was uh, good timing. But then, of course, the, the Hogan thing kicked off, and by that point, I was pretty anti-Hogan, hmm. um, you know, as a lot of people were, and what? sort of, you know, I'd been wanting to see WCW for years, and then when I finally got to see. <laughs> See it, I, my my interest in wrestling plunged again, sort of around that time, 94, 95. Um, uh, just just, be, just
3: before we go on, Kelly, I've got a couple of little questions to ask you here about yeah, sure. being a Canadian fan. Um, yeah, I thought this like, would come up. Like, um, one of the things about being a UK fan um, is... It's sort of... Um, even when Even when I was a kid, so even when I was like eight or nine there's still an element of you taking a kind of sideways look at sideways look at this because it's clearly a very American thing, right? I mean, there's, there's no way of watching um, any of this product without, you know, it beats you over the head. This, it posts itself as being very American, very patriotic, etc. cetera. Um, yeah. And I was wondering, how did that come into play? Because, I, I mean, I think the explosion here happened a little bit later. And I remember, like, people's favorites was never... Like, people never really liked Hogan. Um, as I mean, there were some people who... Obviously, like, Hogan was Hogan, but I never got the impression that he was anybody's favorite. People seemed to like Ultimate Warrior and Bret Hart and those sort of people when I was eight or nine. Um, and I was just wondering what the situation was in, uh, in Canada there.
2: Um, well, in the 80s, I mean... Hogan was beloved, and actually, he's you know in Canada, Hogan's like an all-time favorite for a lot of people. Um, I think even more so in the east around Toronto, sort of uh, that's considered one of Hogan's great strongholds. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the '80s, I don't remember there being any sort of uh, patriotism issues. If you grow up in Canada, you're kind of used to being almost part of the United States, especially media-wise. We we share the same movies, music. TV shows, um, a lot of folklore just is mm-hmm. sort of tied up with America in a lot of ways. But in the 90s, uh, it definitely started to change in Canada. Um, there was kind of a feeling in Canada at the time that we were kind of sick of being the the, the, the little kid uh, being kicked around by the States, so to speak, or something like that. I don't know. Um, so there was like a groundswell of this new patriotism that that came up. And definitely the Bret Hart thing played into it, um, for a lot of fans. For me, it was cool because I, not only was I Canadian, I was, I was from Calgary, you know, um, and so, you know, being a Bret Hart fan, that was just even more special that way. Um, but it wasn't just all about being Canadian. Um, you know, Bret Hart was, it was a different style of wrestling at that time coming off the eighties. And it's funny now cuz I I I you know of all the wrestling I love the most it, it is the 80s wrestling I love the most but in the early 90s I was we were kind of sick of that style and and Bret Hart represented and you know Shawn Michaels too uh like a new direction for wrestling and the patriotism thing really peaked in 1997 with the uh, the famous Canada versus USA angle that it took a totally, I think, different shape in Canada because um, it was tied into real feelings. That was legit. That was like a real feeling that we were kind of, uh, you know, upset with the States or jealous or something like that. And there was this kind of feeling of resentment. And like a lot of things in Canada, it all ties back to hockey. And um, in this case, it was in 1996 in a tournament, the World uh Basically, I guess it's called the World Cup of Hockey, although I've always hated that it's called the World Cup of Hockey because, you know, there's only one World Cup, and, you know, Canada should have it, or hockey should have a different uh, name for it. But anyways, in that tournament, for the first time ever, Canada lost to the United States. Uh, it was a best-on-best best, uh, tournament, and it was the first time Canada ever lost to the States um, in the finals of a hockey tournament like that. And that seriously screwed up Canadian psyche in a lot of ways from then on. And then the next year was the the Hart uh, Foundation versus Austin, the Canada-USA thing. And, wow, I was at that show in 1997, the Canadian Stampede, Um, the only pay-per-view I've ever been to live, actually. I was lucky. It was such an amazing show. It was so crazy. I mean, not only was the card great, but the atmosphere just was unbelievable. It was definitely... You know, the peak of my Canadian patriotism was that day in 1997 at a wrestling show in Calgary. Um, yeah, and,
3: and I, I think even now that angle is pretty unique, isn't it? I mean, oh yeah, it stands out as being something very different, very different dynamic. One of the mm-hmm. few, one of the few times where um, uh, wrestling is kind of like actual sports, you know, where there's home fans and away fans.
2: Yeah, yeah, you could feel it at the time that it was totally something different and they've never really captured anything quite like that again.
3: So, after this point, I mean, did you stay on? Do you still watch the current
2: product? Uh Yeah, um by the end of the 90s, I was kind of I was burnt out, I guess, on wrestling again. I mean, I was huge into the Monday Night Wars, watched um WWF and WCW religiously, watched most of the pay-per-views of, in sort of the 97, 98 years, both WWF and WCW, I would have saw the majority of the pay-per-views then. Uh, and I got to the point where I was getting uh, ECW videos from RF video. Um, so yeah, just total mania watching all the shows. But by the beginning of the 2000s, I just, I slowly, at first I lost interest in WWF WCW. And sort of, you know, I was at that Point in my life where I was, you know, you know, early twenties, kind of rebellious, and I, I clung to the ECW, um, re- uh, you know, yeah. uh, revolution. And even though it was going, that promotion had passed its peak and was going down pretty quickly. By the time I was able to watch it uh, consistently, so yeah. And then with the invasion thing in two thousand one, that was maybe the final. Straw. I was pretty let down by that, and by the time 2002 rolled around, I was pretty much off wrestling completely, um, and I would be for about three years, four years. But then I got back into it. I, I moved to the West Coast in 2005, and I had a roommate at the time who was—he uh, wasn't a big wrestling fan, but he always watched Raw. Like he would always watch Raw on TV, but he wasn't a fan like us. That you know, Mm. it's a hardcore collector of tapes and on message boards, but he just watched raw all the time. So that got me into it again slowly. And then by by 2007, I was just reading all the books. I had a friend who had a subscription to the observer. So, you know, I got into that, Uh, the history bits that, uh, Meltzer writes. Mm. uh, I just got really heavy into the history. Uh, YouTube, uh, sprung up at that time. So I could finally watch a lot of the, um, Matches I could have I only could uh, read about when I was younger um, and yeah uh, right now I, I'd say at the end of 2012 I was at a pretty low point in wrestling I wasn't watching much I totally had lost interest in the WWE again um, in about May and for the rest of 2012 I hardly watched anything um, and sort of the the pwo site was my my uh, main pipeline to wrestling, my main thread to wrestling, uh, if i didn 't have that, I would have been totally off wrestling completely. but in the last few weeks i 've kind of finally got around to um, taking a lot of the the match uh, matches that have been pinned heavily on the Pwo site and just been tracking them down and watching them and it 's kind of given me new life uh, as a wrestling fan, so that 's where I am today.
3: Yeah, one thing that always amazes me is, um, how like, how did the, the sort of fans that we are happen? Like, how does it come about? Is is it is strange um, that uh, there are all these, uh, you know, men in their thirties who take who take such a deep and obsessive interest in <laughs> in uh, in wrestling? Um, it it seems fairly unique to me, uh, that it's it's almost like a kind of, um, it's hard to account for in a way, because I I can't really, like, I don't know what keeps drawing me, and you seem, I've had, the same as you, uh, Kelly, I've had many periods where I just haven't watched anything at all, or I've had, like, low points in my fandom, but something keeps bringing me back all the time, and it, it seems to me that you feel the same pull, right?
2: Yeah, it's something, it's in my blood. Uh, I have other things like, uh, I'm a big comic book fan, that's something I always, you know, go through phases where I'm big into it, and and then I I drop it completely. Uh, Movies, music, uh, real sports, Um, so yeah, it's all tied into that. Uh, But I mean, going back to PWO, I mean, I know I'm a hardcore fan, but... Geez, when I first got on that site and started reading some of the stuff, I just I couldn't believe. I felt like, wow, I don't know anything. Uh, these guys <laughs> these guys have masters and PhDs in wrestling knowledge and I, I just have a degree, I guess. It's really I can't believe like someone like Dylan uh, Dylan Waco, I just does he ever do anything else except watch wrestling? I can't it's just it blows my mind. He's watching everything from every corner of the globe and from every from every time period in wrestling history, it's just crazy. Ch-
3: Chad, you got any comments here?
0: Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, wrestling was my number one interest, hobby, whatever you want to call it. But I do certainly have a like a. I have a very kind of addictive personality, uh, so I do have other interests, whether it be uh, sports or. The bands that I follow that I follow really closely too, and have found kind of sections uh, sort of like a PWO for those arenas as well. Um, so I think other other interests do kind of carry that sort of from a from an onlooker standpoint. It's kind of bizarre, but yeah, uh, it's just what we like.
3: <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I obviously have many other interests as well, and you, you do get you do get the same sort of thing. For uh, I mean, I'm into my gaming, I'm into films, and you you do if you look in the right places, you do find that. Like I, I'm a Bob Dylan uh, fan, Chad, and there are some people who go, like, you know, you go to some places, and like there are degrees of being a Bob Dylan fan, you know. Um, sure. So, um, it, but it, just my comment on. Uh, d- p w o is that, that that that's a place like you, you take any one of us and put us into most rooms and you know you're the guy who's gonna know more about wrestling than anyone else yeah on that site you're just kind of like you know <laughs> one of <us. laughs> you, you you're you're just somebody in the room right <laughs> it's uh yeah. it's uh yeah, there, there there are a few few places like it for sure okay mm-hmm. um oh one last question and this is going to sound kind of random but when you sure. were when you were growing up Kelly did you have any idea that Jack Tunney was Canadian or from uh, Calgary
2: Uh not when I was very young but um by the time I was uh by the early 90s period I had a friend who had grown up in Toronto and he moved to Calgary when he uh when we were about 13 and I think he knew he knew that he knew a lot of sort of little Quasi non kayfabe things that nobody else did. Uh, I'm not sure why he knew that, but I think he knew the Tunney connection because it was a Toronto thing, right? Yeah. And the family history there is uh, the Tunney family in Toronto, yeah, uh, being the promoters. So I think I probably knew by then, but not in the '80s, not when he first uh, was on TV. I had no clue, none at all. Uh,
3: I, I I think they should bring Jack Tunney back, man. That's my uh. I'm pretty sure he's
2: dead now. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, for about ten years. Ago. No, no, he's
3: he's been dead. But but I reckon they should bring that that character back. Um, yeah. Because they've they've gone on this uh, general manager line for a long time now. Um, yeah. And I, I quite like the idea of that kind of just you know presidential figure who comes <laughs> out and gravely talks about uh, you know. But my my favorite one is when the the, the uh, the tournament gets set up for WrestleMania Four. I think that's Jack Jack Tunney's peak right there. Make making that oh, s- yeah. the st- making that serious statement about uh, the status <laughs> yeah. of the WF title, like a Nobel Office speech. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, my favorite
0: uh, is actually the WrestleMania Six contract signing because uh, he he does he ha- he holds it like this very important uh, serious contract signing. You have Warrior with face paint on, and Hogan, and they're screaming about the universe and everything else. Uh, and he's just sort of deadpan, like, okay, well, the match is signed at the very end. Have,
1: have, you,
3: have you guys seen any of, like, late Jack Tunney, like, late in his run? Like, be, just before they, they t- took him off air? Because he, he, he kind of goes a bit heelish for a while. Like, kind of, like, mid-94 type time um he gets gets a little bit of heel heat uh, around that time and he has a kind of slightly darker edge to his character may uh, you 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 have watched the 94 yearbook right Chad yeah
1: and
0: uh, now he wasn't very prominent in that um he was around a little bit but i, I didn't notice him being you know especially more heelish in the stuff that made the, that set
3: Alright, well I think that's enough uh, Jack Tunney uh, talk. Um, uh, Great American Bash 89 is the reason we're gathered here, and um, just before we get on to that, I have the uh, Wrestling Observer's um, Roundup. Now, in July of uh, 89, there wasn't really a lot going on, uh, news-wise, so my notes for this go less than than one side of A4, which is uh, rare. So July the third, the main news is that Gordon Soley is back uh, on uh, NWA TV, and he's on the new Power Hour show, where he has a news segment where he runs up news from all around um, wrestling. So not only from the NWA, but the other promotions as well, especially Florida where he's based. And he also um, talks about uh, World Class and Memphis. Uh, which is a real surprise to me, because, I mean, at this point, um, promotions did not mention other promotions, typically. Um, but apparently, uh, he even mentioned No Holds Barred, uh, on this, uh, segment. So, th- th- this is something I really have to see to believe, because it's, it's, uh, I mean, have have you ever seen this, Chad? Uh, No Holds Barred? No, no, the the new segment with Gordon solely talking about it on... NWA W.A. TV.
0: Um, now, is it, I wonder if he's thinking, I wonder if that's the kind of wrestling, uh, WWN wrestling roundup type thing that we see uh, throughout now. I mean, again, I've, uh, in going through the 90 yearbook and uh, starting the 91 yearbook, the segments with Gordon have all been uh, WCW exclusive. Yeah. So I don't know if this is something they scrapped uh, when they got to 1990 or what. Uh, but I've, I've never seen that in 89, well, uh, like you're talking about, if where he's li- actually talking about other promotions.
3: I, I take it you haven't seen it either, Kelly, right?
2: No, actually, I, I read The Observers just like you this morning, and that was the first I'd heard of it. So you- It it kind of seems strange, but not for the NWA to do it. It would have been strange for, of course, the WWF to talk about The other territories. I don't know.
3: If if anyone has seen this segment that Melts is talking about here, um, or knows where we could get hold of it, I'd love to uh, uh, have your thoughts on it because for me it's hard to believe. Uh, I mean, there's kind of acknowledging the other promotion, and then there's actually giving it screen time and talking about. Because No Horse Bar was actually put on by the WF, right? It was like funded by Vince.
2: Oh yeah, produced yeah.
3: Um, So. That's a major surprise, and I'd uh, like d- d- definitely by 1990, Chad. Those are pretty m- pretty kayfabe. Those uh, those reports that he's doing. Um, so I, I want to see these 89 ones, these early early solely reports uh, where he talks about all the other promotions. Um, July 10th newsletter, and uh, the biggest news is that the Row Warriors have actually ate- eaten a pinfall for once. They they lost uh, to the Samoan SWAT team. Um, in the closest thing to a loss since the summer of 84 for the Royal Warriors. So uh, that's uh, kind of the biggest news there. Uh, and then we got a long bit from elsa on his favorite topic, NWA finances. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't think we need to go into to the ins and outs of it um, at this point. But he's, he, his main takeaway is that if um, the uh, WCW program uh, was a company on its own, it'd be deeply into the red. Um, July 17th, and the main news here is that Meltzer is pissed that TBS uh, are featuring the Atlanta Braves over wrestling. Um, <laughs> and he, he he questioned the commitment of the channel to, uh, to wrestling. And then in the July the 24th uh, newsletter, uh, again, there's not a lot news-wise, but I did spot this odd story about... Bam Bam Bigelow um, winding up in boxing. Did
2: you read this, yeah. Kelly? <laughs> yeah, I did. And I remember reading about that in, in the Pro Wrestling Illustrated mags at the time. Um, that that totally jarred my memory of it, I guess, because I'd heard of that before.
3: D- did that actually happen? Did, did Bam Bam have any boxing matches?
2: Uh, maybe? Maybe?
3: <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't imagine that, because like he's a big guy, and you don't See people of that build in boxing, ever?
0: Maybe versus Butterbean.
2: Butterbean?
3: <laughs>
0: yeah, maybe fought <Paul> Butterbean.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a natural matchup, yes.
3: Well, I, I mean, if Bam Bam Bigelow had a boxing match, it's, it's probably on YouTube, right? Maybe.
2: Maybe, probably. Uh, <laughs> maybe Well, actually, it there. probably wouldn't even have been films. Uh, he probably wouldn't even have fought anybody of note. I doubt.
3: I can't think, like, Bam Bam wasn't anywhere at this point, was he?
2: Yeah, that's maybe part of the reason, is that he kind of burned his bridges everywhere, so he had to turn to boxing instead of wrestling. Wow. But wasn't he working in Japan quite a bit at this time?
3: Yeah, well, in my mind, he that that's where he is, but... Yeah.
2: I do. Who knows?
3: Okay, well, uh, like I said, not a lot from Meltzer, although he does have some interesting thoughts on the show itself, which we'll we'll sprinkle in as we go through. So here we are. uh, We're in the Baltimore Arena in Maryland. Uh, It's July the 23rd, 1989, and it's uh, Glory Days. Great American Bash. Um, So on the version that I watched, there was a countdown show. Did you guys uh, see this or not? I did not. Neither did I. So I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow account of this countdown. Um, there were a lot of hype videos and things um, on this, like kind of packages of Brian Pillman and uh, the dynamic dudes and things. They were all pretty uh, homoerotic, to be honest. Um, but uh, we did get a couple of little angles. Um, so, for example, um, there's one angle where the Samoan SWAT team and poorly um, dangerous, the kind of uh, and the free birds attack the um, uh, row warriors, and then they isolate. Um, our friend uh, Paul Ellering, Chad, and uh, break a phone over his head, and then break a pine. Then they break a pineapple over his head, uh, which was quite amusing. Um, so Paul Ellering actually earning his money for once and doing something. Um, and uh, the other thing we saw is that uh, the great Muta had a match with Doug. He basically destroyed Doug Gilbert, um, and then he misted Missy Hyatt in the face. Um, And she screams like a banshee. Uh, Then later on, Eddie Gilbert comes out and attacks Gary Hart. And then Muto misses him as well. And attacks him with a kendo stick. So uh, Muto and Eddie Gilbert have uh, big issues here. Um, And he's also uh, done a number on Missy Hyatt. Uh, Then we see Luger's heel turn. uh, And he he does a promo saying that Sting uh, and Steamboat care way too much about what the fans think. And that you've got to look out for number one in this world, uh, i.e., yourself. Um, and he says that um, as he's saying all of this, some fans are still clearly cheating for him, despite the fact that he's being uh, quite arrogant these days. Um, and then we get a, a, a kind of uh, a look at the funk uh, turn again from uh, Wrestle War. And uh, Flair says he will uh, wrestle again on July the 23rd as long as his opponent is Funk, So, really, we just get kind of some of the angles going into this. Commentators are Jim Ross and Bob Coddle, and uh, our first matchup um, is what is called the finals of the $15,000 Triple Crown Battle Royal. $50,000. Uh, $50,000. 50000 five zero. 50, 50, 000 yep, right? Oh, $50,000. Uh, um, and just for any any all Japan fans, they're not actually going for the triple crown title here. This is something else. <laughs> so um, they're they're actually fighting for a a plastic crown, <laughs> from what I saw. <laughs> um, so it, essentially, this is a battle ball, right? Where you have the two rings, and um, first of all, you eliminate one. Uh, first of all, you get eliminated to ring B, and then you get eliminated out of ring B. Um, and what is it? The last man who's in the first ring faces the last man who's in the second ring, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So everyone comes out carrying a crown here. Um, so I'm not going to mention everybody that we see, but uh, among those coming out, I noticed uh, Moustachioed Scott Hall, <laughs> Ra- Ranger Ross, our uh, our friend, uh, is there? <laughs> Dan Spivey. And our first look at Sid Vicious. Is it? Is it our first look? I think it's the first time we've seen him, right? Jack? Yeah. This is it.
0: This is our first look at it. And
3: uh, Teddy Long is kind of lurking down the aisle uh, as well. Now, obviously, I can't call all of the action here. Yeah, uh, in a battle royal, um, there are lots of men and they're brawling. Um, but uh, well. The first thing that we can really talk about is that Ron Simmons and Ranger Ross (laughs) make it to Ring 2 first, and Ross uh, gives Simmons a karate kid, and then eliminates him. Uh, And I've just written here, what the fuck? (laughs) Ranger Ross eliminates Ron Simmons. Uh, What were your thoughts at this point, Chad, when uh, Ross uh, was a house of fire here?
0: (laughs) I mean, I guess... Really, uh, I mean, I know with Simmons, um, and I'd, I'd actually kind of forgotten what his place was, but since Clash 4, I think this was, uh, our first look at him again on one of these super shows. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's pretty clear from, uh, obviously him being the first one eliminated in the opening match here that until he joined Doom, uh, there was not a lot going on in his career. No. You 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 can really tell that, I I don't know if they didn't have high hopes, or he was still really green, or, uh, I mean, because he looked fine in that Clash 4 match that I know you're really fond of, and I thought it was really good as well, Um, but uh, yeah, so I guess they still have some, uh, a little blind faith in Ranger Ross, (laughs) and not a lot in Ron Simmons right now.
3: Imagine being Ron Simmons talking to the booker that night, like... You're going to go out there, you're going to get eliminated first, and you're going to get eliminated by Ranger Ross. Like, it was like
0: <laughs> <laughs> Pretty easy night, though. It's so yeah. last we see of him. He's out there for like two minutes.
3: <laughs> um, it, That's one thing I always uh, wondered about the Royal Rumbles, actually. Like, do the guys who go 40-50 minutes get a bumper paycheck that night? Or are they getting paid the same as, as if they only go out there for a minute? Any ideas? d
0: don't know but I mean can you imagine that's that's one thing i I guess I've never really thought about too much, but I mean like the warlord in nineteen eighty nine, I mean he, he has to put on his gear, has to put on his face paint, all this shit, and he he's in the match for four seconds. <laughs> so you're talking about probably at least an hour of preparation for four seconds. He's at the <laughs> arena all day. Uh, I actually had to travel there. Four <laughs> seconds of workers, So that's kind of funny.
3: But my all-time yeah. favorite, I think, is... Butch, uh, is it Luke from the Bushwhackers? Yeah, Bushwhacker <laughs> Luke in the 91 <laughs>
0: Rumble. Uh, that's where... Uh, who is says he whack I think it's uh it's gorilla that it says he whacked in and then whacked right out.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he does he does like the bushwhacker walk all the way
2: back up the aisle as well. Yeah, <laughs> he never stopped doing it. it,
3: was just, it was great. <laughs> um so lots more guys make it to ring two now and Spivey uh power bombs Ranger Ross, who I think goes out then at that point. Um Sid and Brian Pillman are the only two people left in ring one. Uh, More people get eliminated, Um, Gordy, Gilbert, Pillman himself goes out, um, and we're left with basically Rotunda and Spivey versus Dr. Death, Steve Williams and Ring 2. Obviously Sid is just in uh, Ring 1 on his own now. Rotunda eats a power slam and then misses a flying clothesline to go out. Uh, Rotunda trips Williams from the outside, allowing Spivey to clothesline him. Uh, and eliminate him. So it's the tag partners, Sid, Sid Vicious and Dan Spivey, uh, left to face each other in the uh, what do they call this? The Match Beyond? I can't remember what they call it now. In in the last bit of the Battle. King moment. of the Hill, I
0: think. The King yeah, of the, King of the Hill.
3: King of the Hill. Uh, but their manager, Teddy Long, uh, is out and he's saying that he's not going to allow them to face each other here. Uh, and they're going to split this $50,000 between them. Then they try to put the crown on long, but for some reason it doesn't fit his head, and he just decides to hold it up. Um, uh, Interesting booking here. Uh, I couldn't help but notice that this crown is like—it's the cheapest plastic. If if you go to like a kind of, I guess, what do you call it—a dollar thrift store or um, something—this is the sort of crown that you'd find there. This is this is the nastiest prop I've ever seen.
2: Yeah, it's definitely not Jerry Lawler's game. <laughs> All
3: right, so so thoughts on this one. Kelly, uh, what do you think of this?
2: King? Well, it's just a, a typical battle royal. I mean, even with the two rings, it's nothing special. Uh, basically, just to... The, the whole purpose of the match is to get the skyscrapers over, right? Uh, this was sort of their coming-out party. Um, and actually, going back to the Ron Simmons thing, I noted too, you know, that, wow, he got eliminated before Ranger Ross, that, you know, he's the lowest man on the totem pole, but then this morning when I was reading the observers from that time, there's a note about, uh, from the June 26th, uh, 89 Observer, that the idea was for uh, Ron Simmons and Butchery the team, as the ebony experience, mm-hmm. and Simmons refused to go along with it. So I'm thinking maybe now it makes sense why he was the first one eliminated. That he might have been in the doghouse for uh, refusing to (laughs) debut the Ebony Experience.
3: That's a terrible name, even for (laughs) 1989. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um,
0: That that sounds kind of up there with with the ding-dongs.
2: Yeah, it was around the same time. They probably all came out of the same uh, booking meeting, coming up
3: with names. <laughs> well, they call it the Ebony Experience and have Missy Hyatt as the manager? Or is that going to take uh, it too far? <laughs> yeah,
2: well, that was something. Well, they had woman eventually.
3: But, uh. um, what do you think of the booking here, uh, Kelly? Do you, do you think this is quite good, you know, getting in the mode like, pissing off the fans, basically, by not giving them what they want to see here? <sighs>
2: yeah that's tough and i I actually um I, I didn't mention this before, but i, I the Bash 89 was a tape that I actually acquired about twenty years ago um, from a, a video store in the bargain bin. Uh, one of the few WCW things that came through at that time. I was pretty lucky that it was this show. Uh, anyway, the first time I watched this match twenty years ago, I you know I can remember thinking what a ripoff this finish was, you know not not getting a final confrontation, right? Uh, but I mean I can understand that they wanted the two of them to be there at the end to show how dominant they were and yeah, it makes sense. It, in the end, it's just an opening match battle royal, so I guess it's not that big of a letdown and it was a pretty lackluster battle royal before the ending. I mean at one point when Kevin or um, Steve Williams is eliminating Bill Irwin, he just has this look on his face of sheer boredom, like he'd rather be anywhere else than that. Just totally going through the motions. So, you know, there wasn't too much effort into put into this match at all.
3: Should I do your thoughts on this one?
2: Yeah, I I, I pretty much
0: echo uh, what Kelly stated there. Uh, not a, not a lot going on. I think, kind of in retrospect, the finish is more acceptable, but I can't understand. Uh, you know, if I if I'd have bought this show, I might have wanted a little more conclusive finish. Now, you know, it, you know, who cares really? But uh, but yeah, not not exactly a uh, great opener to start us
2: off. Look,
3: very surprising here that Meltzer goes three stars on this. I can't understand that
2: at all. He was live. He was there in the arena. He said it. Uh, this and the War Games came off way better live than on tape, for what it's worth. But three stars seems ridiculously high for this match yeah. one star seems like enough if that
3: so um, yeah and those crowns are awful like that crown that Teddy Long's got at the end there is is, is like I've never seen such a cheap something so cheap looking on a it, it, it is probably the worst um, wrestling prop ever on TV uh, oh, yeah. Can anybody think of anything that looks cheaper off the top of their heads? I can't. <sighs> so, um, what happens here now? Uh, we get a promo from <laughs> Terry Funk.
0: Yeah, some great uh, De- NWA production here. <laughs>
3: so, he he talks about um, extinct animals and endangered species, and says that he is the most of all of the endangered species he stands alone, and that he's not a member of any corporation. And then, the video messes up and slows down. <laughs> um, it, it kind of like goes into super slow-mo, and his voice slows down as well. And uh, I thought this was just my copy of it, but uh, as if to underline it, Jim Ross apologizes for the, uh, for the fact that it was actually their mess-up, that their video went wrong. This was a good promo though for uh for what we saw about. would you agree with that?
0: yeah, I mean, I like this promo going in when it started uh slowing down. I thought this was actually the uh the onset of the black scorpion angle because <laughs> he started talking like how old he sounded when he's the black scorpion uh and then i I did like uh Ross kind of covering saying that he he viewed the video this morning earlier and Sort of told us uh, what what Funk was trying to get across, but uh, yeah, this was a good uh, good promo by Funk. Actually, a little less uh, kind of more restrained, I think, than a lot of his typical promos.
3: Yeah, I, I kind of like this version, this '89 version of Terry Funk here. He's kind of um, like oddly intellectual in a way. <laughs> um, do, do, do you know what I mean by that? Um. Yeah. I
0: mean, I, I would say like maybe uh, he's really coy and sly, yeah. like in his demeanor. Um. So yeah, it's it's very uh, very interesting the way he's portraying himself here.
3: So Gordon Soley is back, and um, w- the first thing I thought about w- of when I saw Soley here was Lance Russell. Where does this leave him if uh, if Soley's in this spot now? Because Russell's still around, right, Chad? He's still around in nineteen ninety. Yeah,
0: yeah, he's still. He, this uh, this is kind of an interesting little. Uh, this is, I guess, Gordon's first show. So this show really is uh, interesting in that. Really, besides, uh, I guess Gorilla and maybe even Vince, if you want to include him, but probably really Gorilla. You got four of the uh, top five probably most distinguishable uh wrestling announcers of the eighties in one promotion. Yeah. Uh, between Coddle, Ross, uh, Soley and Russell. I don't I don't think anybody really will argue for uh Johnny Mercer or the uh any of the AWA announcers. Um so it's 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 really a very impressive quartet that they were able to assemble in this, like, 1989-1990 time frame with all four. Uh, You know, and Gordon still has it all together at this point, too. Uh, It wasn't, uh, you know, kind of as he got later on in the 94-95 type years where he uh, had lost a little bit of a step. So uh, this was very interesting to see.
3: I always thought Gordon Sully's eyes are quite glassy, you know, what I mean, like, he seems like a guy who may enjoy a whiskey late at night. Well, uh,
0: (laughs) maybe not even late at night, if you believe a lot (laughs) of the rumors, so.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he likes his booze.
3: You know, you forgot Tony Schiavone in your list of, uh, (laughs) Fominable. You almost (laughs) forgot he's gone, right? At this point.
0: Uh, let's see, I don't, was he quite gone yet?
3: Who? Uh, yeah, he was. He was.
0: Shivani. Yeah, yeah, because he did. He, was he did MS. a SummerSlam. Yeah, he did SummerSlam '89. So.
3: Yeah. No, he's been gone a while, right? Yeah. Yeah, he uh, probably
0: would have been gone since what about January, February, maybe?
3: Yeah. Um. So anyway, Gordon Solie's with uh Teddy Long here, and the only thing I've got to say about this Teddy Long promo is that his teeth are horrible. Like, <laughs> you know, you guys give uh. The Brits uh, grief about bad teeth. Look at Teddy Long <laughs> oh. here. He looks like his teeth are like dog teeth or something. They don't even look human. <laughs> I, I think
0: Teddy looks better now. And we may have mentioned this on another show, but I mean, really, we're 24 years since this took place. <laughs> and, and Teddy looks better now and more stylish uh, than he did then. And actually kind of around the same age, too.
3: Yeah, that's that's the weirdest thing, is that he doesn't seem to have aged in any way. Um, yeah, he's got kind of like steady. a Benjamin
2: Button. A steady WWE paycheck probably uh, helps a lot.
3: Now, the weirdest thing for me uh, about Teddy Long, and this will sound uh, like a slightly heelish comment for current WWE fans who listen to the show, all uh, three of you, uh, is that uh, I don't understand how Teddy Long's had a... Twenty-four year career, but like he's never been anything more than adequate. I would suggest. Would Would you agree with that, Chad, or, or or do you actually think that Teddy Long gets really good at some point?
0: Um, I would say adequate is probably the best. I mean, to me, the best Teddy Long stuff that I've personally seen is kind of uh, when he takes over Doom from Woman. Yeah. Uh, in the late late 1990, early 1991. Uh, I mean, now in WWE, I mean, he's he's a character and he's not offensive. But if if he left the business tomorrow, I wouldn't be shedding any tears or anything. So but I he,
3: think
0: adequate's a perfect description.
3: Even in that Doom Run, he's nothing more than a low rent slick. In my book. And that's pretty, like... <laughs> I do I don't know
0: if I'd go that far, but, uh... I, I certainly also wouldn't be putting him up there with, like, the Heenan's or the Jimmy Hart's or some of the
1: all-timers, either.
3: The only other thing to mention about this little segment is that, uh, Gordon Soley, um... Uh, is announced from the Wrestling News Network, as if he was kind of, like, some freelance journalist or something. Um... <laughs> which uh, I thought was an interesting little angle to take with him. So they're they're kind of um, pimping him as an independent voice here, as like a a journalist with integrity, Uh, which is quite nice, I I think. You know, it's a little bit different. Um, So, second match, Wild Bill Irwin versus Flying Brian. Um, Have we seen Brian yet, Uh, uh, Chad? No.
0: We saw that video of him on Class 7. Um, you know, they showed that kind of very flamboyant uh, video. But uh, this is our first actual in-ring uh, look at it.
3: This would be a good point for you to tell me whether you're high on him as a guy who's traditionally always been pimped or not. Um,
0: I, I mean, I think one thing I will say with Brian uh, Pillman, is I think he has kind of a wide spectrum uh, where, I mean, for instance, I know Dylan thinks that uh, from the period, I guess, of here till 1992, he's one of the best baby faces of all time. Mm. Uh, I mean, I would not go that far. Um, but then I've also seen people that are very low on him. Uh, I mean, I thought, I, I think he's a, a good worker. Uh, that it is unfortunate what ends up happening to him in his career. Uh, But I'm really interested in seeing, uh, as we go through the shows here, how, really how good he is, I guess, because, uh, we'll, we'll really see the best of him. I don't think, uh, especially from an in ring standpoint, uh, he was pretty much a shell of himself, uh, after he leaves WCW. So we'll kind of, I think we'll have a fair uh, gauge of what he actually could uh, do in the ring when all is said and done.
3: Kelly, you got any views on Pillman here?
2: Um, I, I've always liked Pillman. Uh, I don't his work as a babyface. Actually, uh, I can bring in some of my Calgary experience in that he debuted for Stampede Wrestling uh, probably about two years or maybe even three years before this in eighty six, eighty seven. So I, I was, uh, you know, following Pillman then. He was always a babyface in Stampede. Uh, part of the, it was known as the Bad Company tag team with him and Bruce Hart. Um, if you grew up in Western Canada, it's, it's something that a lot of people will always, uh, call back on. Um, yeah, they were the, like the rock, they were basically the equivalent of the rock and roll express kind of rockers, uh, hard throbby type tag team, if you can even picture. Ever picture uh, Bruce Hart as a heart drug, <laughs> but Pillman definitely was. Um, so he was definitely, yeah, a favorite when I was young. Uh, he was exciting. He was flying Brian. He was, you know, him and Owen Hart were the two guys that, that did the high-flying stuff for Stampede then. Um, his run in WCW, I, I you know, just because I wasn't able to watch this stuff at the time, and I haven't watched a lot of his babyface WCW stuff since, um, I'm more familiar with his Hollywood Blondes era, yeah. uh, and then his later uh, craze—the uh, Loose Cannon Pillman stuff—and I, I really like that stuff. But I haven't watched it in a long time. Um, but yeah, Pillman—maybe not a lot of classic matches. Now that I think of it, is something that you could probably hold against him.
3: Yeah, I mean, I as a heel fan, uh, I'm. Kind of hardwired to prefer his Hollywood blonde character to the character we have here, um, but I'll be interested to see how his in-ring work holds up. When I watched all of the 90 shows a couple of years ago, I don't recall anything from Pillman standing out in my mind, but um, I may view things differently now. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask at this point, uh, Kelly just before we go into this match, is, yeah. of the other hearts, so, not Brett, not Owen, so, like, Bruce, <clears throat> Keith, all of the other ones, basically, Who
2: who who is the best of those, or are they all rubbish? Uh, well, it's got to be Bruce, uh, but, you know, Keith, I've seen matches um, of his, um, he was almost, it seemed almost the stories in tag matches, um, and Wayne Hart was the referee, uh, who wrestled occasionally? He'd get blow- uh, drawn into an angle where he'd uh, join up with a babyface team and wrestle. And then there were the other hearts that I don't think wrestled, or Smith Hart did the oldest one, but he was long gone by the time I uh, started watching. So it'd definitely be Bruce, and I have a soft spot in my heart for Bruce because he was um, actually a substitute teacher uh, in Calgary. And he uh, subbed for a couple of uh, my classes when I was probably in grade 8, grade 9. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and and you know, we just talked about wrestling the whole time. Uh, that was, yeah, he couldn't teach us anything. He just sat and told stories about Owen Hart and the British Bulldogs and, and Bret Hart and the WWF and stuff like that. Kind of cool. That's
3: pretty amazing, you know. <laughs> um, did, was, it, was he over? Uh, like, obviously Bret was the big star up there, but was... Uh were the other hearts over? was
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, and Owen was super over, but yeah, they were all, I mean, Brett, or Bruce was over. If you ever watch any Stampede matches, um, the ones that I can think of are his matches with the Dynamite Kid in the early 80s, and the crowd heat for that is, is crazy, and they're pretty good matches. I know, I mean, Dynamite Kid's considered now a guy that you kind of look back on and say he was overrated, but I, I, still, I still like Dynamite, you know, 80s Dynamite, I always will. And so, yeah, but again, I haven't watched a lot of that stuff in a long time. I've spent most of the last five years watching, you know, stuff that I didn't watch growing up, so I haven't watched a lot of Stampede in a long time. Yeah. But Bruce was, Bruce was good enough, I mean. But when he came to WWF, of course, <laughs> for his uh, brief appearances, he always made an ass of himself, <laughs> embarrassed himself, kind of. Um,
3: just, just on Dynamite Kid, I, I do think he's a, he's a victim, I guess, of what you could describe as wrestling hipsterdom now. Like yeah, if you're a wrestling hipster, it's kind of the, the done thing to consider Dynamite Kid as being a bit passe, you know?
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's not cool anymore to like Dynamite. So,
3: um, as we start off here, Bill Irwin jumps Pillman, um, but uh, Pillman comes back with an arm drag, um, and then another arm drag, A side headlock takeover into a headlock. He does a head scissors, baseball slide, more arm drags. Um, drawing comparisons with Ricky Steamboat from uh, from Jim Ross. Um, he goes into an arm bar in a decent little shine <clears throat> sequence here at the start. Irwin gets a side slam in um, and then a suplex. And uh, the side slam there reminded me of Dino Bravo. I could never believe that that was his finisher. Like, a side slam? Are you kidding me? Um, but I'm told that the side slam is actually a really painful uh, move to take. Uh, he's, I noticed that Bill Irwin is quite loud shouting around the ring here. Um, like as loud as somebody like Iron Mike Sharp. Yeah. And uh, we get a long chin lock from him now. Uh, Gary Juster gets a shout out, uh, this being Baltimore. And um, Irwin gets a big uh, uh, clothesline in and then a knee to the back. Um, then he chokes him on the second rope uh, and then throws uh, Pillman basically at Gary Michael Capetta, who uh, who has to get up pretty quickly, otherwise he's going to get a hit. Uh, Pillman comes back with drop kicks, and then he hits a big splash. Um, then he misses a drop kick fr- from the top. Side Salto suplex by Irwin now. Um, which Is that different from a gut wrench suplex? It seems to be the same move to me. But, uh... Jim Ross seems to prefer to call it the side salto. Any ideas, Chad? I
0: think it's the same. It's the same move, right? I guess uh, just how you want to say it. Which version?
3: Then he thro- uh, he throws him into the second rope. Uh, Pillman hits a, a crossbody jumping from uh, the turnbuckle of the other ring. So jumps a good 10, 15 feet uh, there. Quite impressive. So... Not a bad opener type match here. What uh, are your views, Chad?
0: Yeah, I mean this was solid. Um, nothing extraordinary, but uh, pretty solid work. A good uh, preview of Pillman. He looked good and energetic throughout the match. Irwin would not shut the fuck up when he was on <laughs> offense. He was like a uh, a Joshi wrestler, just yelling, screaming. Uh, got got kind of annoying. Um... And what he did, again, I'm not, uh, very high on him, uh, overall at all. And he didn't do much in this match to, uh, change my opinion. Actually kind of hurt, hurt, uh, my view of him in this match because of the way he would, kept on yelling and screaming. Uh, but overall this was, uh, you know, decent, but, uh, nothing extraordinary, but a good, a good, uh, solid first match for Pillman.
3: Kenny.
2: Yeah, yeah, but about the same view as Chad. A uh, solid match, decent, nothing special. Um, yeah, the Irwin stuff with the, the talking, that was one thing I noted. Um, yeah, I mean Pillman I also noted, yeah, he does make a good baby face. Like he does sort of the you know, the the fiery looks into the crowd, you know, you could see how he was a, you know, a very good baby face and, and a total different character than his later uh, heel persona, um, but yeah, and then the jump from the one ring to the next uh, was a pretty groundbreaking spot, I'm sure, for 1989.
3: Um, the one thing I will say about Pillman as a face here is that, is there any sense in which the this kind of white meat baby face in 1989 is getting to be a bit dated now? Like,
2: Oh yeah. It's, it's I, I was going to note. Oh, sorry. I was going to note the boring chants at one point early in the match, and also a lot of uh, heel chant, or uh, definitely a heel crowd tonight in Baltimore.
3: <laughs> yeah, we we love our Baltimore heel crowd. <laughs> um, but like, I mean, essentially, this is the same character as uh, Rick Martel would have been in like AWA, or the same character that Tito Santana was for in like '85, say. Um, you know, it's just a kind of old-school baby face. There, there's no other character for Pillman here. Or am I reading this wrong? Do you agree I, with you? I mean, I,
0: I think Pillman does have a little more edge than, uh, like, a like a Fantastics-type character. Uh, but I do think that's something that may have had to been kind of molded over time too, because of the changing uh, atmosphere in uh, in the wrestling fans at this point.
3: So Gordon Soley's with uh I, mean, I mean, uh my views is that it's just not bad this match you know it's it's fine two and a half from melta seems fair enough to me. Um Gordon Soley's with poorly dangerously who's in uh, a tux here and I notice it's the it's the same tux that Soley himself is wearing. So <laughs> I, I reckon they just uh, hired the same two, like the s- same. They w- they went to like a hire company, right? And they just said, "We need two tuxes tonight." Um, Paulie mentions uh, Cornet's fall from the scaffold at Starcade '86, which I thought was very smart. And uh, he knows that the knee, uh, the knee is still hurt, and that he wears a brace, which is a pretty great callback. Um, going back a few years. Pretty good promo from Paulie here. Kelly, any
2: good? Yeah. Yeah, I noted the same thing, the callback to Stark 886, you know. Uh, a nice touch that you could, uh, you know, dangerously would have definitely uh, thought up of. Um, and then there was also, I don't know if you guys caught this, the reference to Rob Lowe as a babysitter. He quickly says that. Do you, you <laughs> understand what that means?
3: No, I don't. Rob
2: Lowe. is don't either. No, I well, Rob is Lowe is... The,
3: uh, it's the
0: same Rob Lowe that's the actor now, I assume, right? Yes,
2: yeah, and in, uh, around this time, he was involved in a basically a, a sex scandal with an underage girl where, uh, a tape, he filmed himself having sex with, I guess, a teenager. And it became, it got out into the public. And it was a big, uh, you know, uh, People Magazine cover type uh, scandal at the time. So dangerously, you uh, slipped that one in slightly there. <laughs> uh,
3: what I thought was really good about this promo is that it established early on that this is a manager and therefore a tactician. Like he's he's already thinking about strengths and weaknesses and tactics, even though he's not a wrestler. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, yeah. But Anything to add to that, Chad?
0: Uh. No, I, I mean, it
3: was a good promo. Um, so, Gary Michael Capetta is here now, and he's with... Uh, guess who's coming back from the wonder years altogether? <laughs> Jason was,
0: Hervey. Jason <laughs> Hervey, my boy. He he also got booed. Um,
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, the Baltimore crowd do boo the shit out of him. <laughs> and I couldn't... I Like, Jason Hervey is a proper wrestling fan, right? I mean, he's there to see the show, and <laughs> they just boo the shit out of him. Um, <laughs> which uh, entertained me greatly. And uh, Jason Hervey now in 1989 couldn't look. Um... <laughs> I mean, how would you describe his look here, guys?
2: Well, I mean, he looks like a 1989 teenager, basically, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. He's so uh, yeah, short. I mean,
1: he,
0: w- he, he was 17 at this time, so. Uh... <laughs> I, I know even now, if I thumb through some of my high school uh, yearbooks, probably not going to be too proud of the uh, the looks I was displaying in some of those photos.
2: <laughs> yeah. I probably looked a lot like uh, Jason Hervey in 1989, actually.
3: Jason Hervey. <laughs> um, I just love the fact that he just gets wheeled out every few shows. <laughs> it's our new... Big star guest, Jason Hervey, back again. It's like <laughs> the fifth time now. Um, he introduces the dynamic dudes who couldn't look more early 90s. Uh, they're, they're ahead of the curve here. They're all bright and fluorescent, and um, they have a frisbee with them, Um and they pull a kid out of the crowd and they throw frisbees with this kid
0: oh yeah this this kid was having none of it too did you see yeah. his demeanor yeah. he was he was not excited to be getting that frisbee
3: uh, and he he was kind of like a little chubby kid as well <laughs> Made it. yeah
0: yeah he was he was pissed off that they pulled yeah. him over
3: uh, do you think he got grief for that in school the next day <laughs> like you were pulled out by those two uh guys in the pink and yellow shorts Um, so there is a section of the crowd clearly booing dynamic dudes here I mean they are not liking the dynamic dudes tonight yeah Um,
0: I I think uh, I mean of the shows we've seen this is the first uh, pretty big backlash against the dudes uh, that we've seen where they're just not uh, they're, they're not cutting it for the Baltimore crowd
3: yeah, and this Baltimore crowd. I mean, we uh we saw another show where they were pretty badly behaved, right? Uh, was it uh the, when was the last time they were in Baltimore? They were
0: there for the Bash '88, yeah, um, as yeah. well. And that that again. Um, I mean, of course, that's where they kept shitting on the finishers. But uh, I think even like Nikita in in that opening tag match, he was getting some kind of i Heat versus uh Tully and Orange, so they're they I mean I mean Baltimore is a an edgy town, so it's not a surprise.
3: That's where the wire is set, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. So dynamic dudes. So yeah, I'm just thinking of the wire and the dynamic dudes in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's oh, taking... Omar interacting
0: with the <laughs> dynamic dudes.
3: <laughs> um. So he is. Uh, they are taking on the Skyscrapers, um, and Ross and Coddle think that the Skyscrapers will be the tag team of the 90s. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed
0: that. And they weren't even a tag team in 1990, so uh, yeah. well, that, that was
3: great. Yeah, there was amazing. Like They were saying, oh, we've got some great teams, the Road Warriors, the Midnight Express, Freebirds, but in years to come, the team that people will be talking about is the skyscrapers. It's <laughs> just ridiculous. And then Jim Ross goes into his whole uh, NWA is real wrestling sh- sh- uh, spiel, uh, which would come to haunt him later in the show. Because he said that this is real wrestling here. It's not snakes or pets, he says. Mm-hmm. Um, remember that line for a little later on in the show, okay? <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> and then we get a big peanut head China Teddy Long here. Did you notice this? The crowd are just in full on chanting peanut head at him, which was yeah. pretty unfortunate. But you
0: you could tell that Ross loved that too. That they <laughs> chanted uh, the peanut head at him.
2: Does he? Still... Well, at least he was getting the right kind of heat.
0: Does yeah, he... that's true.
3: Does he get still get that chant? Do they still chant peanut head at Teddy Long? No, I think
0: uh, I think that's the way of the past. I mean, now he's completely bald. Uh, but, uh, I, again, that's something that's became trendy nowadays, is to be bald, so...
3: Yeah. But I also think it's because this crown won't fit on his head, right? This pathetic <laughs> crown that he's got. Like, he won't put it on, because he can't... I don't think it will stay there. Um, anyway, as things start here, Spivey dominates, um, and, uh, the dudes get a double drop kick on him, and a double monkey flip in their brief shine segment here, um... I've got another note about how pathetic uh, Taylong Crown is. <laughs> Sid tags in, and this is our, real, our first look at uh, Sid Vicious here, uh, and he gives a double axe handle, then he does a slap, then he tags out. Uh, so Spivey's back in after that brief cameo from Sid and um, hits a clothesline. Shane Douglas comes in with rights, Spivey hits uh, the rock bottom here. I don't know what the actual move for Name for that move is, but it was the rock bottom. Um, what you you talk about the rock bottom or the
0: yeah? Well, he hit a razor's edge too. What
3: well, uh? What what do we call the rock bottom? Does that have a move, a name that move?
0: Yes, but I I know I'm gonna mispronounce it. Uh, it's kind of like a urinage, I think is the yeah. actual. Yeah,
2: I don't know how to pronounce it either. But yeah, urange—that's how it looks. Yeah, it's like U R A N A G. -G Yeah,
0: is how you pronounce it.
3: Uh, And then a razor's edge, right?
0: How you spell it? I'm sorry.
3: Then he did the razor's edge uh, following. Yeah, which
0: I know in uh, I know in lucha (laughs) is called the Splash Mountain.
3: (laughs) And then after that, he did the big boot. So he's just uh, Spivey's repertoire consists of other guys' finishes here. So, then uh, Teddy Long. uh, So <laughs> Shane Douglas takes a tumble to the outside here. And Teddy Long does some stomps that can only be described as dainty. <laughs> yes, Those are horrible looking so bad. <laughs> Did you see these uh, stomps, Chad? They were just like. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Connell tried to sell them too, as uh, like. Like vicious blows I mean, Ross, Ross pretty much just came out and said that was that was more insult than actually like injury to him yeah. uh and then and then he kicks him again and Coddle tries to redeem himself by saying that was a stiff shot or a big blow, I think is actually how he phrases it.
3: Jim Ross was kind of in a smarky mood tonight, wasn't he like he yeah was-
0: he was he was a little uh throughout this card, he was kind of in his uh uh, a sarcastic mood, but I kind of I kind of like that yeah. uh, side of Ross because I mean, as as you hear what kind of his real personality is, his true personality, he's kind of a prick. Uh, <laughs> so I and you know I do think he's more natural <laughs> when he's like that on commentary.
3: Yeah, and I would like to say I still think Bob Coddle's bringing nothing to these shows. I know that's an unpopular opinion, but uh, like he doesn't say anything of worth and he hasn't, right. he, he hasn't for many shows now. Is it, do you agree with that, Kelly?
2: For this show, like, I, I, I like Coddle um, from his older stuff, but tonight, or for this show, he was just basically repeating what Ross was saying every time almost without a single original statement to be made all night.
3: You've been the big defender of Coddle, Chad. Did you, was this another, yet yeah, another off night for him? I
0: mean, I thought he was fine in this show. I mean, nothing extraordinary, but uh, I mean, I've, I've always could, uh, been under the assumption that he really flourishes when he actually goes to Smoky Mountain and is paired up with Dutch Mantel. Of uh, the stuff I've seen of him, that's been the best. Uh, but, it, but I mean, in this show, he was, I thought, uh, pretty good, especially in the main event.
3: I read Dutchman Tell made a comeback recently, is that right? Oh, Barb,
0: oh, yeah. that's a whole can of worms this week. <laughs>
3: yeah, we don't want to get into that. Let's not get into it. I'll, uh, oh, yeah,
0: that's, that's, <laughs> uh, that'll be a 20-minute rant on the character and what ended up happening.
1: So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: All right, let's get back to Teddy Long's dainty kicks then, shall we? Uh, <laughs> we get a suplex back in by Spivey, uh, and Douglas uh, kicks out. Sid comes in, and the crowd is just cheering, really wildly cheering at uh, Sid here. And I couldn't help but notice that he hypes it himself. And I've just got a note here, Chad, question mark, because uh, when Barry Windham did this, you hated it, Chad. So, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, um,
0: I mean, I I wasn't a fan of when Windham did that, but... Uh, I, 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 I mean, in this, I did give this, I think, more of a pass, because in some ways I don't think there was any hope for the dudes and getting cheered, right. uh, so, but I mean, it, it did seem like throughout this match that he was, uh, his sole purpose was to get himself over, Yeah, uh, which is not something I'm very fond of.
3: So, we get this odd backhold by Sid now. Um where I don't really get what he's meant to be doing. He just seemed to be, like, pushing down on the... Like, the, this is one of the worst submission holds I've ever seen. What was... what? Did you see this, uh... It, it, it's, it's essentially
1: a claw
0: to the back, is what that was, which, uh... <laughs> and,
2: and, 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 and I don't know. It, was, there it didn't was have very good many good. tricks in his toolbox at this point.
3: Yeah. <laughs> you could say that again. So Spivey comes back in now and hits a side... To, slam and a backbreaker. And I notice that the crowd now turns on Spivey. And they start booing Spivey and chanting okay. We want Sid. Um which uh, if you're Spivey you've got to be thinking what the hell are these people on but um then we get a hot tag to Ace. The crowd is uh notably muted for that hot tag. Uh he gets a flying clothesline and then we get a double drop drop kick on Sid uh but a power bomb by Spivey on Ace. Is enough for the one two three Chad
0: um I mean this was kind of an interesting match from the audience dynamic, but uh I, I mean not very good uh the the skyscrapers were pretty much stiffing the poor dudes and just really throwing them around and hitting them with some uh some nasty stuff. The power bomb at the end was extremely sloppy. Uh, Johnny Ace when he got his comeback looked terrible and uncoordinated. So this this was uh you know kind of a interesting match. And I will say one thing about Sid is uh, he really had a uh, an atmosphere to him mm. in this match. He had kind of a mystique that you don't get a lot uh, a lot from Sid. I mean he has a great look just in if you look at a picture of him and his entrance, but. Uh, I, I couldn't recall many crowd reactions that he got that was as good as this one. Um, I mean, Survivor Series 96 kind of came to mind. Uh, so, so that was neat to watch, but the match is nothing, uh, very good at all.
2: Kelly? Yeah, it was horrible. Amateur <laughs> hour. It was just sort of one, you know, time, blown spot after the next. And, oh, God, yeah. Um, the crowd shit on it. Um, Sid doesn't even try to be a heel, you know, like has been mentioned, plays to the crowd. Um, apparently Sid was working with a bad back uh, that night, according to Meltzer, so I guess you can give him a pass. Because otherwise, wow, he did nothing in the match. You know, the first time he was in, he did, what, one or two moves, and then tagged right back out. And, and the nerve hold, claw hold thing, and Uh, A clothesline later on that looked just horrible, and uh, yeah, no, this match oof, so pretty bad.
3: So the the note I got here obviously Sid did absolutely nothing in this match at all, and what he did do didn't look very good. Um, So Spivey was carrying things, and he did a lot of moves as as I mentioned: rock bottom, power bomb, uh, razor's edge, various different suplex uh, variations, but all of them were bad, right? Like. Spivey's not a good worker, is is the takeaway I got from this match. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah. His punches in, in actually, the Battle Royal, um, his punches were very light and weak-looking, just crappy. Um, you kind of got to give him a pass in a way, because he had to do so much of the workload. By the end, when he had to do that last powerbomb, he was gassed. and I mean, but he's lucky that Ace didn't get dropped on his head for that one, because that was very close. But, yeah, he had to do everything because Sid uh, was incapable of anything other than uh, cheerleading, pretty much, uh, for this match.
3: Chad, do you think it's harsh to Spivey to say that he's just bad, basically?
0: Yeah, I mean, he's not very good, and that uh, that kind of pains me to dog on a uh, University of Georgia football alumni. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, he is, he's not, not very good. Uh, I mean, some of his Japanese stuff, he's been... You know, pretty good. But uh, for instance, somebody like him versus Johnny Ace uh, throughout their career, I'd pick. uh, I'd pick Johnny Ace.
3: Right. And uh, is this the end for the dudes? Tell me, it is. No, 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 no.
0: no. Oh no! Christ, they 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 got a lot coming up. I've had enough. It gets uh, worse. I've
3: had enough of those guys already. I really have. Um, (laughs) they they're kind of like a really poor man's. And when I say poor man's, like I'm talking about like a beggar on the street with without <laughs> a penny to his name, version of the Fantastics, like just bring the Fantastics back if they're going to have this team.
2: Yeah. Or um, a poor man's rocker. Oh yeah, totally.
3: or, or a poor man's rockers. Um, so Gordon Soly's with Jim Cornette now, who says here he still has to wear that knee, uh, knee brace, but he whether he has to hop or crawl to take poorly out, he's going to do it. And uh, Jim Cornette is a surprisingly good babyface promo. I, I, that's the thing I've got from the past few shows. Would you agree with that, Chad?
0: Yeah, I, I, I like uh, Cornette as a babyface, and uh, he brings a lot of fire and energy, uh, so he does a good job.
3: Yeah. So d- let's go to the tuxedo match now. Poorly, Dangerously versus Jim Cornette. Um, Poorly comes out to the Exorcist music. And uh, apparently he's been calling himself the, uh, the the yuppie psycho, something was that what he was calling himself? The yes, psycho yuppie, yuppie psycho.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, Cornette, uh attacks dangerously to star, but gets a face uh, full of powder, and uh, then dangerously smashes Cornette's knee with his phone. So he's going straight after that knee. Poorly with a series of rights. Ross calls them feminine. <laughs> And then speculates as to what sort of underwear uh, he might wear, which uh, was close to the bone. And and then, like, Coddle (laughs) Coddle comes in and he says, yeah, well, we think that Jim uh, Cornette may be that way as well. Which is kind of an ambiguous little comment. But uh, was that always part of Jim Cornette's character, that he may be gay? Is uh, Is that true or not?
0: I mean, I mean, I think uh, it was certainly a part of Cornett's character that he was a mama's boy.
3: Yeah,
0: I think. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, honestly, with Ross, I don't, I don't quite understand what. Uh, I mean, like the like the main joke he always says, as you see in 1990, is that in mixed doubles in tennis, he had a partner, and it and uh, the his other partner was a man, which. I don't really know if through that. He's insinuating he's gay or he's a woman or or what type of uh, insult he's trying to throw Cornet's way. But, uh, but I think you, that's more Ross's digs at him.
3: But did you, did you catch the line from Coddle where where he said where he like it was odd because Ross is like these punches are feminine, and I wonder what sort of underwear he's got on, as if to say like what he's wearing a pair of panties there or.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah they were uh, speculating <laughs> heavily about that
3: okay so uh cornette comes back uh but it's just a hope spot uh his knees are shot, basically he goes outside and uh cornette gets posted poorly then misses an elbow drop uh cornette hulks up now and the, and uh, makes a comeback. The fans are absolutely loving it i mean they're This is one of the loudest cheers we hear all night, I think. He is super super over. Um, He takes Paulie's shirt off. uh, Then Paulie kind of gets some powder ready. um, But Corny kicks his hand, uh, so the powder goes up into Paulie's face. He takes his trousers off, and Paulie is wearing bright blue underpants, and he runs back down the aisle. Now, I thought that for what it was, this was terrific. Uh, What did you think, Kelly?
2: Yeah, I thought it was great too. I mean, just in the first few seconds, it was a better worked match than the, the previous uh, abomination. Um, and this is between two managers. Um, good selling, really good selling from Cornetti is great. Um, and the punches from both guys actually were. I was especially surprised by Dangerous's punches. They were really good. Um, well, for a manager, anyway. Um, I One thing I, I thought the the second spot with the powder was pretty contrived, you know, or dangerously basically walking with his hand open in front of him towards Cornette, but you know, whatever this, it is what it is. This is, this was a fun match for sure.
3: Chad. Yeah. That, that
0: second spot with the, with the powder that Kelly's referencing, it kind of reminded me of, uh, if sometimes when people have a steel chair and they bang it off the top rope and then end up having to hit themselves with it. Uh, but as as far as a, a bullshit match, which is this was, this was straight shtick. Uh, it, it was very well done. Uh, it did tell a story, had some stiffness, uh, like Kelly said, that was kind of surprising, um, and, and had a good payoff. I mean, this is a feud we've seen... Uh, for the first half a year of uh, of 1989 and at the tail end of 1988, so this has been a pretty long-standing feud, and uh, this felt like a suitable blow-off to it.
3: No, I absolutely agree. I, I actually think it's got great psychology uh, for a six-minute match between two managers, and the crowd is very hot, which always helps. So, um, yeah, for what it was, terrific, I think. And... uh so one and three quarter stars from Meltzer. If that, if the battle royal is getting three stars, then uh, then this match deserves more than that. Um, but I don't really know if you can. Start, you know, this is a sort of match that makes a mockery of star ratings. I think that you can't, you can't really rate stuff like this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, this this is almost
0: a match that kind of needs to be ranked on like an entertainment level. Yeah. Uh, it'll be a lot higher.
3: And I do like the fact that it leaves, a, like, the the ring is a mess after this match, and that carries <laughs> on for the rest of the show. I, I yeah. like the fact they've really messed up the ring here. Um, So, Gordon Sully's with uh, Gary Hart now, who seems to think, uh, so the two things I got from this promo is that, <laughs> one, he seems to think that the TV title is second only to the world title, um, which is a very contentious statement from Gary Hart. Secondly, he seems to think that Terry Funk owns the world title, which um, seemed at first to me to be a mistake. But on, but it could also be foreshadowing. What did you think here, Chad? Uh, this,
0: I mean, this was a uh, not a very good promo, I think, from Gary Hart. He's somebody that I've never really cared for a whole lot. And, uh, and I mean, I didn't think this was good. He seemed a little confused.
3: Yeah, did, did you think he just made a mistake here when he said Terry Funk owns the world title, the TV title is second only to the world title? What planet is he on? I, I
0: mean, I don't know if he was trying to portray that that was what the future held, but, uh, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I think I think he was a little turned around. He looked a little turned around.
3: Right, so did, any comments on that one, Kelly?
2: No, I, I had the same notes. The the screw-up with it, calling Funk the champ and and the comment about the TV title being the second most important. Uh, I like Gary Hart uh, from what I've seen um, from his earlier stuff in Georgia and, and World Class. He's, you know, kind of a different kind of a heel manager. But, yeah, no, this promo was pretty bad.
3: So... Yeah, I mean he's still not Paul Jones bad though. I I still think he's better than Paul Jones, so he's got that going for him. I, I'd probably take him over Teddy Long as well if I if I had oh, to yeah. if I had to pick, you know. Um, so we have uh, Varsity Club versus Steiner Brothers now in a Texas Tornado match. Uh, and from my knowledge, I've uh, I knew that this was no tag, so I was quite pleased when it w- the stipulation did turn out to be what I thought it was. Um, Jason Hervey is at ringside, uh, I noticed, and he very quickly bailed. Did you see that? (laughs) He jumped over the railings, which was uh, quite impressive. Um, Steiner Brothers are with Missy Hyatt here, and Rotunda's wearing bright uh, orange for Syracuse. So, they basically pair off for most of this match. Rick and uh, Kevin Sullivan brawl outside um, with the table for the first five minutes or so. And Rotunda and Scott go back and forth inside the ring. Uh, Then all four men get in. Uh, We get a belly-to-belly by Rick on Sullivan. Scoop power slam um, as well. Rotunda hits a suplex. We get double clothesline on Scott. Uh, Steiner line by Rick on Sullivan. Steiner line is just a clothesline, isn't it? As done by Rick Steiner. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I
0: mean it's basically a stiff clothesline.
3: Uh double backdrop on uh, Scott. Sullivan nails Rick with a chair. Sullivan gets Rick up for a slam, but Scott comes from the top for a double pin in a very sloppy looking finish, I thought. Uh Chad, your thoughts. Your th- Um well
0: uh, one thing I, you didn't mention was uh Kind of to play off on uh, Ross saying that there's no pets. Oh yeah. Uh, here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you want to go ahead with that.
3: Well, yeah. He had, uh, Rick Steiner had a hound with him. <laughs> so, so
0: we could throw that theory out the window. And yeah. then we also had a. Uh, A very uh, sexist comment, I I think it was from Ross, where, yeah, it was, when (laughs) uh, Missy came down the aisle, where he says, that's quite a pair, and I'm not talking about the Steiners.
3: Yeah, I noticed, and and did you notice that Ross, (laughs) did you notice that Ross was kind of backpedaling when he saw that hound, he was trying to get over the idea of this being like, it's not really a pet, but like a kind of, you know... (laughs) just kind of but, uh, a manly sort of thing to have, I think. Yeah,
0: yeah. as far as an actual match, uh, I mean, honestly, I think this is uh, in contention for me as one of the best uh, sub-five-minute matches I've ever seen. Mm. Uh, it, it was very uh, chaotic. Um, a lot of kind of... It kind of looked like a precursor to sort of the Nasty Boys versus Cactus Jack, Max Payne brawl from Spring Stampede 1994. Uh, There was a lot of uh, stiff shots, some uh, nasty post shots on Rick. The Steiners, again, I thought looked good and were stiff. Uh, The the finish didn't look great, I don't think. Uh, But one thing that I did like about it was that Scott utilized the Texas tornado rules. So once he uh once he did the finish, he also climbed on top and kind of pinned uh Sullivan along with Rick. So you had both members of him. Yeah. Uh pinning pinned Sullivan. I, I mean, I mean I, I really enjoyed this. I thought it was uh, intense, chaotic and very good uh in 5 minutes.
2: Kelly. Yeah, yeah, great uh Great match, or, or six, five minutes, great little brawl. Um, I remember when I watched this the first time about 20 years ago, it was pretty eye-opening because that was before ECW had taken over uh, the Attitude Era and all the, the, uh, the violence and, and breaking tables and all that sort of stuff took over. So this was quite a treat at that time. Um, yeah, yeah, Sullivan. They, Sullivan's great in this uh, setting of just a wild brawl. And Rotunda was pretty good too. That clothesline he gave Rick was, was awesome. Um Yeah, yeah, good match. Good match.
3: And, yeah, I, I I've written here I thought it was a really good sprint, uh, in my opinion. Um and I think that Rotunda's kind of on form here. You know it's it, like he's had a really good eighty nine, I think, uh, so far. Um and not as boring as he's often made out to be, I think during this period, like, with, with, uh, his feed with Steiner in general has been quite good, I think. He's been feeding Rick Steiner for quite some time now. Um, yeah. So, yeah, good. Uh, is, is this the end for the Rusty Club now? Uh, will they be gone by next time, or or are they sti- I,
0: I, Yeah, I think this is it that we'll see of them. Uh, so, from here on out, the next, uh, the next time we'll see Rondô will see uh he will be uh, the full on captain with the uh, with the sailor's hat.
3: So we talked uh, last week, um, Kelly, on the on the yet to be aired Clash of the Champions show. Was it Clash Seven? Yeah. Um, we ha- I haven't actually uploaded that yet, um, but we talked about where the Varsity Club would rank in a kind of all time stables list. And we but we both kind of agree that they wouldn't make a top twenty. What are your views on that? Who would you agree?
2: Oh, I think they could make a top twenty, probably. I mean, they're kind of a, I've I've always liked them as a unique thing with the university wrestling gimmick and Sullivan being you know involved in that and in this usual craziness and
1: it 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 evolved
2: you know well you know with Rick being in it at the beginning and then turning babyface and then them feuding. And then eventually Scott getting in the mix and uh, Steve Williams. I'm not a huge Steve Williams fan, as I'll mention later, probably, um, but he was involved too. Um, I don't know. I think twenty, not a top ten stable, but I'd say definitely a top twenty stable.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, Chad, you, got, you, you, you were the one who listed all of the all of them last time. Yeah. I, I mean, I thought I thought we
0: did. Preference that as a top ten when we talked about it. I mean, I mean, ten through twenty, I'd have to give some thought to. Uh, I mean, and a lot of that can kind of be like whether. I mean, to me, if you include like the Von Ericks as a stable, you know what I'm saying? Like if like if you include them as a stable, I'd put them ahead of them. Uh, but, I mean, I, I think that's something we could definitely uh, maybe do down the line where we make a list of that. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah. yeah. But, but
3: you mentioned like
0: I, I mean, I, I would say I would think I would put them in the conversation for a top 20. Uh, but it's doubtful though they would crack my top 15.
3: Right. Yeah. I mean, it, but you mentioned like there's the the ones from Japan as well, like Revolution, Choshu's Army, and... Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I think if you include them or like the the Los uh, Los Brazos from uh, from Mexico, uh, I mean, once once I think you expand internationally for me, it gets uh, very tough to justify. And then, uh, I mean, if we do a list, we might just narrow it down to a uh, U.S. and Canada,
1: but uh, we'll see.
3: Yeah, but like you've got to remember, like Heenan family. Um Iterations of uh, Jimmy Hart stable, so it's like there's a yeah. lot of competition there. Uh, yeah. If you th- if you think about it. Um, so, uh, where where were we here? Gordon Solie's with Sting and Eddie Gilbert. And the first thing I noticed about Sting is that his hair is looking pretty cool out here, slightly different from his normal uh, style. He's got a perfect DA. Do you guys are uh, familiar with that with that phrase, the DA?
2: No, it must be an English thing.
3: It's uh, that's known as the the duck's ass. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So I know it, uh, that one. The the kind of Elvis, uh, the Elvis perfect kind of. Uh, yeah, fifties greaser hair. Yeah, so Sting is rocking that look tonight, uh, and I I quite <laughs> like it, you know. <laughs> and um, he's uh quite subdued here. Uh, he needs to concentrate. Um, So one of the things I noticed with Sting is that his early character here is all about excitement. He's kind of like Mr. Excitement. Do you agree with that? That, That's basically his character. A man who gets excited. (laughs) Right. Okay. Um, So we get a gong now, some smoke, and uh, Big Muta gets a big entrance here. Um, So it's the Great Muta versus Sting, who's with Eddie Gilbert. Uh, I don't think there's a lot to say about that Sting promo, really, is there? I mean, um, we get we do get a little bit of Eddie Gilbert on the mic, I guess. He looked like a trucker or something, didn't he, in, in that cap? Yeah, this
0: was a, a very small glance into uh, what Gilbert can bring uh, from a promo standpoint.
3: So there's a massive splash from one ring to the other to start from Sting here. Um, But Muta comes back uh, with a chop from the top. Some sections of the crowd are clearly supporting Muta here. uh, And we get several big kind of Muta, Muta, Muta chants throughout this match. Uh, But Sting is also really over with the crowd, it'd be fair to say. So um, there's definitely like a hardcore or smart or heel faction to the crowd here who are oh, yeah. supporting guys that they like. Uh, Muta is uh, coming in with some flash offense now, including a crossbody over the top to the outside. Sting comes back with a clothesline and a slam. Uh, Muta counters a suplex with uh, what Jim Ross calls an Oriental sleeper, um, which just looked like a, any other sleeper to me. Uh, we get a military press by Sting, snapmare by Muta, Chinlock, Coddle uh, mentions here that uh, Muta knows at least seven different varieties of martial arts. Um, can you name seven? Karate, Judo, Kung Fu, Thai, Kickboxing. That's four. I've one out. Anybody know any more? That's
1: sorry. all I got. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> uh,
3: there's an abdominal stretch. Um, so, showing off that martial arts knowledge here. Uh, Sting comes back with a bulldog, a standard drop kick. Muta accidentally misses uh, Nick Patrick by mistake. Uh, Muta hits uh, the moonsault as the ref is out here, and Tommy Young, uh, trusty Tommy Young here, slides in to count, and it's only a two. Sting hits a back suplex and bridges it nicely into a pin, a one, two, three. Sting retains the title, but oh no, Nick Patrick wakes up and somehow decides that he's going to give the match to Muta, which I don't really understand, because Nick Patrick was out cold here, so how do they even see this? Uh, so we've got the George Scott finish, and uh, there's a big bullshit chant from the crowd. Kelly, I'll go to you first. Uh, yeah,
2: I loved this match 20 years ago, and I was pleased to uh, see that it's aged pretty good. It's, wow, like, super fast-paced. Uh you know, well-timed spots and everything. Um, Sting, like a really big-time feel to this match. Um, before, you could, you know, notice how it was. The crowd treated it differently than anything that came before. Sting got the big, you know, big star entrance. Muda was, this may be actually the peak almost of his sort of aura as a big star in WCW. Mm. Um, I love his music. <laughs> I've always loved Muda's music. Um, Great match. Yeah. Yeah. Just a fun, fun match. Uh, the ending, I mean, you know, they built this up for a, uh, for the future and, and with the controversy with the title. So that's, that's forgivable. Um, uh, Meltzer, I think notes in, in his review that nothing was announced to the crowd. So it was totally, you know, they were left in confusion. And, you know, yes, you can understand the bullshit chance for that. But it definitely also left me, you know, dying to see a rematch between the two, because I'm not sure if they ever really hit this height again, uh, as a singles match. I'm not even sure if I've seen another Sting-Muda match. Maybe that one from uh, the Starcade coming up, but that was... Muda had lost a lot of heat by that point, for sure.
3: My my assumption is that the next Clash would have some sort of rematch on it, but... Do you not? No, it has a tag. I believe
2: it's a tag match. Yep, Sting yep, and it's,
0: uh, it's, uh, it's Dick Slater and Ryan. Buddha right. teaming, yep.
2: Against Sting uh, and Yep.
3: Did Dick Slater clearly has a kind of Terry Funk sub look about him there. In that yeah, <laughs> yeah, the Terry Funk. <laughs> uh, um, Chad, what do, you, what do you think about this one? Yeah, I was, uh... I was
0: kind of nervous about this match going in because i uh I figured it would not hold up kind of i mean I, I sort of figured we might see a dynamite kid tiger mask uh sloppy moving kind of half speed type match uh compared to a lot of stuff we see now, but I thought it was a great uh great kinda of junior sprint type match very uh very hot action muda hit all of his stuff. Really, really well. Uh, and then it had the cool finish where, uh, where Muda hits his finisher, but, um, but then, uh, the ref is knocked out, so that allowed Sting enough time to kick out. The actual finish with Muda getting his shoulder, or his shoulder wasn't down, is not as good. Um, you know, that's kind of the annoying finish we've seen a lot lately. In these shows, but uh, for a kind of eight-minute junior all-out sprint, uh, to me these two guys look like uh, kind of future-up and rising superstars in this match, and I really enjoyed it.
3: I I also thought it was really good, and um, yeah, I mean, two great matches in a row in my mind. Um, so Meltzer goes three and a quarter on this, and he go and he went two and a half for the Steiner tag. Uh, would you agree with those ratings?
2: Well, you um, bumped no, it up to three and three quarters after watching it on video, apparently. Right. Um, yeah, that sounds... Yeah, four four stars sounds too much. Yeah, three and a half, three and... I don't like the quarter star stuff. It gets like, how do you determine <laughs> the difference between a half and then a quarter, three quarters? But yeah, it's like a solid three and a half. Star match, for sure.
3: And and the Steiner one? Two and a half? Seems a bit harsh.
2: Yeah, I would go three, at least, for that. Three, yeah, I'd say three, for the Steiner's uh, match.
3: Chad?
0: um, With the Sting-Muda match, I'd probably go uh, three and... Uh... Nine
3: sixteenth. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> is that the accountant no. in you coming out there?
0: <laughs> no, uh, to, to me, three and a half seems uh, seems fine for Sting and uh, Sting and Muda, and uh, I, I agree with three stars for the tornado tag. I do think this is the best singles match I've seen them through. Um, I'm, I'll be coming up on their uh, Starcade '91 match from Japan. Fairly oh, yeah. shortly, I, I don't remember it being near as good as this. Uh, I think a lot of their other matches kind of never reached uh, this peak again.
3: I I do think that when uh, you find yourself in arguments about Sting as a worker, this would probably be your match to point to. That, that was my feeling as well. He he really holds his his, his end up well. I thought, um, yeah. and if it if this was on like one of those kind of uh Chad, you know, like, you kind of get good clash shows and you get those kind of weird clash shows where nothing, not a lot happens. If this match was on one of those, it would be like Match of the Night, etc. Yeah. Right, so... um Good. So, uh, Gordon Solis with Lex Luger here, um, who doesn't agree to the no-DQ stipulation. And I think that Lex Luger has hit his stride uh, on the mic here. These are the, easily the strongest promos we've seen from Luger. Do you agree with that, Chad? Yeah, this was
0: very, uh, natural, uh, a good character uh, that likes. He had kind of a clear motive that he wanted to get across in this promo, and he delivered it very, very well.
3: Yeah. Ke- Kelly, we, we've talked quite a lot about Lex Luger on the show, uh, and mm-hmm. of late uh where do you stand on him and uh also face or heel with him because that was a talking point for us last show chad um that i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on Kelly.
2: yeah i think definitely heel um luger a guy you know for a long time i i really didn't like and most of that a lot of that had to do with his um all-American babyface Stars and Stripes run um, in WWF mm-hmm. with the Lex Express at, you know, basically at that time it was a popularity contest between him and my hero, <laughs> the Hitman. So, yeah that, and also by that time he, he I don't know, kind of regressed, I guess, in ring is kind of the consensus by about 92, 93. I like the Narcissist,
1: yeah,
2: um, but that that was ended too quickly, right? Well, of course it was. I mean, the whole thing with the Lex Express thing was it came out of totally out of nowhere and you couldn't believe him believe it that he was suddenly you know the happy-go-lucky babyface American patriot but um, this I mean at this time Luger is really good Um, I kind of I think for a long time didn't want to admit that for some reason and then getting into the PWO site you know this era Lex Luger is definitely uh, praised, and from what I've watched of the last few years from this era, even his baby face work um, from the previous year against Flair and other stuff that he did uh, is good. Um, you're definitely seeing Luger at the peak of his uh, of everything at this time. Um, I think he really cared a lot. He really felt like a pro wrestler at this time and not just a football jock um, moonlighting or, or slumming it in pro wrestling as... Um, a lot of people kind of characterize Luger as at different points in his career. One thing, um, I,
3: one thing I couldn't yeah. help but notice uh, here is that um, there were a lot, there were a lot of, there's a lot of narcissist in him at this point. Um, like, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I did before, I didn't quite pick up on that, but they're, they're, like they, there's a lot of that character in him already. So it's kind of like his heel persona is that character really? Um, and I think he's really good at it. I think it it works well. The, the, the main problem with Lugo, I always think, is that he gets his balls cut off whenever anything gets going.
2: Yeah, turned way too many times. Like he course. just
3: gets turned all the time. Um, as, I, as I think would happen to him in this heel run, right? Yeah. He gets turned turn face again. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, Ricky Steamboat comes to the ring on a platform. Carried, <laughs> so he's be- being carried now down to the ring, on this platform, and he's got in his hand a Komodo dragon wearing a leather jacket with spikes on it. So, Jim Ross must have been, like, curling up into a ball and dying inside at this point. Because he's already, like, we've already seen the hound dog, now we're seeing a Komodo dragon in a leather jacket. This is the end of it. Maybe this way. was a rib
2: on Ross the whole time, you know. <laughs> this is they the end of didn't tell him about all the animals that were going to be on the ship. <laughs>
3: Real wrestling here in the end of the day. Um and uh, then Lex Luger's on like a little rotating platform doing kind of bodybuilding poses. Um which was fun. As as he gets out here, Luger gets on the mic and says that if there's if there's no DQ, uh if this no DQ DQ stipulation is gonna be upheld, there is not gonna be a match here. He's he's essentially refusing to participate to defend his title under these conditions. Um, Gary Jester is out here, um, and next to Lex Luger he couldn't look weedier, basically, with his little moustache. And he kind of has a talk with Steamboat, and ultimately Steamboat agrees that this is going to be a regular rules match. Um, Did you like this? I thought this was a really effective little thing to show what Dick Luger was right at the top of this match. Like he he yeah. Will you agree, Chuck? Yeah,
0: I thought this yeah, I thought this was really uh really good uh you know, good way to have Luger have a focus mentality, uh, since he just turned heel and uh kinda seemed like it was gonna be on his terms or no terms at all.
3: So um what happens at right at the start of this match? Um st- Steamboat goes for a series of near falls to start. So there, there are shades of his Randy Savage match here, where he he just goes like for about five or six near falls right at the start here. Uh, he hits some big chops and an atomic drop on the outside. Luger turns uh, the table with a knee that I seem to miss. I did I I missed uh, what I only heard them mention it. Did you catch this knee? I did I didn't see it happen. I I didn't see that. No, No. I I think the camera may have missed the transition here. Um, We get a big backbreaker by him then, and a gorilla press. He focuses on Steamboat's back now. He draws at Tommy Young, and uh, as he's doing so, Steamboat sneaks a small package on him. Uh, Luger is pretty pissed now, and then he hits three big clotheslines, which all look really good. Um, Then we get the the comedy days punching uh, spot by Steamboat here. (laughs) <laughs> I mentioned that my uh, just for like five minutes or so uh my wife uh decided to come in and kind of watch like five minutes of this, and at this point when steamboat started doing the kind of uh day's punching, she said this is ridiculous behavior and got up and left <laughs> so um that uh that would entertain me uh we got a good control segment by Luger here uh some good power moves by him. Uh, Steamboat gets a neckbreaker in, Luger misses a clothesline and tumbles outside, he tries to slam uh, him back in, but Luger falls on top of him for two. Uh, The action moves to the other ring now, and Luger goes and grabs a chair, Uh, he takes a slingshot into it, but then Steamboat snaps and nails Luger with the chair for the DQ. Uh, He goes wild here and chases him all the way back out to the ring, Uh, all the way back out to the outside with the chair. So, I th- I think, Chad, you first.
0: Um, now, I will say on that spot, that is one spot that I would... I really think I would have hated it uh, if it was anybody else. But I kind of liked it here. I will admit that. Uh, as a match overall, I thought this was very good. Um, I want to preference by saying that. But I did think this was a little disappointing. Um, in some regards from what I'd seen before. Uh, I'd I, I really thought this might kind of be uh, maybe one step below kind of what we've seen from Flair and Steamboat. Mm. Uh, and, and while, I, again, I did think this was very good, I didn't think this was like even as good as uh, the Flair-Luger matches uh, that we saw. Uh, but, but, I mean, the work is very, very consistent. A very fast pace, uh, dare I say, kind of WrestleMania 3 esque, um, in the amount of, uh, in the pace they set for this match. Uh, I did like Luger, he had a huge lariat on the outside, uh, but, uh, and Tommy Young was kind of annoying in this match. He catches, uh, he hooks his arm in steamboats at one point and allows Luger to take over by offense, which, aggravated me, and then I thought the finish was kind of, while in some ways it is nice to see Steamboat kind of show some aggression and hate that we don't typically see from him, uh, it did seem kind of stupid in this regard that he would just uh, throw caution to the wind as far as winning the title and attack Luger with the chair. Uh, so so I mean again very good but uh to me slightly disappointing from what I remembered and from uh kind of the reputation I think this match has
2: Kenny? Okay. yeah I'm kind of the opposite this was a match that when I saw it years ago I always rated the um of course flair funk and then sting muda and the war games as the top three from this show um. So watching this uh, for the first time in a long time, I was yeah, it's it's a really good match. Um, Steamboat was really good at this time, and like we just talked about, Luger was really good. Um, it like the previous match with Sting and Muda, the finish really made me want to see a rematch between these two because you got the feeling that this was just like the first chapter in a in a feud that you know sadly never happened because I think Steamboat. Is pretty much done by the shortly after this. Unfortunately, Um, a good pace to this match. Yeah, I mean they weren't given. It was only uh, ten minutes twenty six seconds, so they weren't given the time of the flare steamboat matches or the or the main event would get. So I think you know if they were able to build this feud to a conclusion, the the blow off for this feud, the blow off match of this feud probably would have been an all time really really great match. If they'd have kept working together, because, uh, yeah, this is really good, and I definitely have um, gotten over my Luger bias, I think, now, and I'll, I'll check out some more stuff uh, coming from this period for sure.
3: So I also disagree with Chad here um, in that I thought this was actually probably the best Luger match that we've seen. I think it's better than the Flair-Luger matches, because I honestly think that Luger is... Gr- is lesson like he did things as a face that annoyed me whereas he was perfect as the heel here i mean he his his uh i mean even melter says it here his his heel mannerisms were so good that even though the crowd started out pro luga by the end they you know they could only boo him really because he was um that good at doing uh you know that role um, mm-hmm. He also mentions that uh, a section of the crowd were chanting "steroid faggot" at him. Obviously, I didn't hear that. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, I
2: <laughs> forgot about reading that. Um, Apparently, he's having like a back and forth with some fans during the match, but that didn't stand out to me. I?
3: No, I, I didn't notice that either. Um, yeah, I. This is at least four star in my book. Uh, Malta goes four and a quarter, but you know, quarter stars. I mean, I, um, <laughs> the but uh, would you go that high with it because it sounds to me that you wouldn't
0: well i mean i i do uh i mean i kind of personally do sort of use quarter stars mm. um i mean I, I mean i would kind of say it's uh, i mean i would say it's in the four star range yeah um i mean i don't know. i mean like again i don't i don't want to sound like i'm dogging on it but uh but now, is it four and a quarter or
3: four and three quarters?
0: Four and it's one. kind of tough for me to read. It looks like it's four and
3: three quarters. I think it's one quarter. I think it's just a quarter. Oh, no, oh okay. Uh, uh yeah, no, you mentioned it. Um, no, I think it's just a, qu- a quarter. L- l- let, me, let me put it this way, okay? Let's say this match happened, okay, in 1989 in uh, WWF. I think it would have a massive reputation. This match, if it if it had happened there, um, yeah, and I think it would have been like a match of the year candidate, basically, um, had it been on the on their product. So on that basis, I I don't think like it's easy to like, obviously not a lot of things are going to compare well with Flare versus uh, Steamboat, okay. But I think like for a ten minute match. I don't know what more you can want from from these two guys. I mean, it, Steamboat was tremendous here, I thought. Yeah. I, I, I know you've generally been, well, I, I don't think you've been down on him, Chad, but you've been kind of reserved with your praise for him. Do you not think he was really good in this match?
0: I mean, I thought he was good, but, uh, I, mean, I mean, to compare, I mean, to me, honestly, I thought Sting was just as good in his match as Steamboat was here. So, you're talking about somebody that's three years in to a career that doesn't have that great of a rep. And, I mean, you know, both were good
1: performances.
0: But I was not blown away by Steamboat here. And, again, I thought he did look kind of stupid with the finish.
3: Well, I mean, with the finish, I think that it's justified by the fact uh, of the story that was being told here. So... Right at the start of the match, Lugo wanted the DQ stip removed. He's the one who brings the chair to the ring. And lo and behold, Steamboat ends up getting DQ'd. So it's like, if the match had happened... The story being told is that if the match had happened as booked, Steamboat probably would have won. But because Lugo was basically arrogant enough to... Or pussy enough, I guess, to want this DQ stipulation removed, he ended up winning the match on a technicality like a a, kind of heel. Is that not enough of a justification, Britt? I mean, not to me,
0: because while that's great from a concept, it still did not look like to me that Luger coyed Steamboat enough into using the chair uh, for the DQ. I mean, it kind of just seemed like Steamboat was just being... Mm -hmm dumb. Um, I mean, I, I think there could have been a smarter way where Steamboat kind of thought he was doing it outside of the ref's vision point, or or there's there could have been other ways where he was working around it, where Steamboat snapped and resorted to cheating, where here he kind of, to me, casually picked up the chair and then just started whaling away on Luger to obviously cause a DQ.
3: Kelly, uh Ch- Chad said that um, Sting was as good as Steamboat tonight. Would you agree with that comment or or not? Um, uh, I
2: yeah, I mean it's close. Sting was really good. Uh, Steamboat was really good. I, I I'm a huge Steamboat fan. Um, I, I actually I just watched the uh, match with him and Funk from the last Clash uh, just a few nights ago for the first time. He was really good in that too. Um, yeah, I, I, it's a different, they're a different wrestler, different style. I guess maybe you could say with Sting, when he has a good match, you kind of think, well, you know, Sting is kind of handicapped by being a non, you know, he didn't come from a, a serious entrance into wrestling where he sort of just fell into it and maybe isn't as, as committed as some guys. So when Sting has a good match, it's, you know, yay. But with Steamboat, when he has, you know, St- Steamboat standards are, are much higher, I suppose for his work. Um, but, and the finish to this, I think, was believable because uh, Steamboat has kind of a, uh, it's, it's in character for him to have this sort of loss of temper type finish to matches. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the uh, match he has with Savage uh, from WWF. Uh, of course, not the famous WrestleMania one, but the one from uh, Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. Uh, that, yeah. Which has a similar finish with Steamboat losing his temper and getting disqualified. Um, when he could have, you know, he had Macho on the ropes, and Macho was bleeding, and yeah, he kind of uh, lost it that way. Did, so it's consistent with his character. Did,
3: doesn't that awful snooker match have that finish as well, Chad? Oh,
0: I've tried to block that <laughs> match out <laughs> of my memory. Now, but I will say in the Toronto match, it is kind of similar. But just for me personally, I kind of balk, I guess, that... uh Steamboat was so out of control and flustered that, uh, you know, he kind of was just seeing red at that point and, uh, kind of wasn't thinking on his feet. Uh, so I do think that Toronto match is justifiable, uh, more than this one. But I mean, again, and I did, uh, just a quick clarification I did blow up, uh, the Observer and it is four and a, a fourth star, uh, is what the rating is. So, I mean, and, and you know, I'm not, it's not like I think this is only three stars. I would say at the absolute lowest, I would have this match would be uh, three and a half, uh, probably three and three quarters. So it's not a huge variance. I just think I'm um, uh, probably lower than most.
3: And, and you wouldn't agree that this is the best Luger match we've seen? Oh, no.
0: Yeah, I absolutely like the luger uh, flair Starcade match better, for right. sure. Yeah, and too. the uh, As well as the Clash of the Champions one tag.
3: Yeah. Okay. Now, as overall matches, I'd go with that clash uh, one match, but I think this is the best uh, Luger singles match. Um, I understand a lot of people would go for the the which uh, which flare match the Starcade one, right? Or, or yeah.
0: Match. Yeah. I mean, I I think the the Great American Bash match I would put uh, you know probably in the conversation, but I'd probably have this match ahead of that. Uh, but but I think the uh, the Starcade match I'd have that one um, ahead of this but, one. The,
3: that's the First one with, with the, on the uh, with the finish with uh, kind of Flair landing on top of him, right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's mm-hmm. where he has him the, in the
0: rack. Uh, his Luger's leg buckles, Flair pins him with his feet on the ropes. Mm,
3: that is a good match. Yeah, something to think about there. In a, in a few weeks when we do our end of eighty shows, these are the sort of things we'll be talking about. Uh, sure. So uh Jim Ross now has a little piece of camera. Um and um we are introduced now to a heel promo for the war games. Uh and there is a lot of shouting here. <laughs> that's my that's my only note. Yeah, that was my
2: note too. For the babyface team anyway.
3: Um well I mean the he the heel, the heel uh, promo is basically consisted of the uh the Samoan Swat team kind of growling and grunting and stuff and um Terry Gordy and uh Michael Hay shouting. And it seemed to go on for a long time as well. Yeah. yeah. It's like a, they were killing at like five minutes or so here. Um They had to put up the cage. <laughs> yeah. So well, the, Oh probably... then we get a promo from the midnight or or rather a uh, Stan Lane. Bob Eaton doesn't say anything. Uh then Doctor Death <laughs> Did you see that? He kind of like does kind of bird swooping motions yeah. across the camera. Um, and he talks about being a bird killer and about wanting to um, use some bug spray. And then the row Warriors also kind of cut their standard stuff as well. Uh, and I don't think there's much to say about these promos. Any thoughts, Chad? You...
0: Yeah, I mean they were both kind of loud and Out of control, on both parts.
3: Yeah. Um, I don't tend to like uh, the, you know, standard kind of Survivor Series or War Games, like promos where all the the guys are shouting all at once. They don't tend to be the sort of thing I go in. What I will say is um, the best uh, Survivor Series promo ever for me is uh Ric Flair's team from 1991. Those guys look kick-ass. I think it's like Flair, DBRC. Uh, yeah. Is it Mountie? Warlord. Mountie and Warlord. Is that the team? Or yeah, Mountie and Warlord. Yeah. The, the, yeah. those guys look cool as a team. I, I like. That's a good little. Uh, that's a good little promo that one. Um, so this is the War Games. Uh, it's the Freebirds. That's uh, Jimmy Garvin. Michael Hayes and uh, Terry Gordy, and the Samoan SWAT team versus the Royal Warriors, the Midnight Express, and Dr. Death Steve Williams, which on paper is one of the better looking war games teams, I think. Uh, it's Jimmy Garvin and Bobby Eaton to start. Uh goes back and forth between those two, and um, <laughs> Hayes trash talks Eaton from the outside. And uh, Hayes on the outside is one of the highlights of this match for me. Um, So, I've noted what he does quite a lot going through here. Uh, The second man comes in here is Terry Gordy. Uh, Michael Hayes calls um, a fan a Baltimore puke (laughs) on the outside. Uh, Eton is getting pummeled on the inside as Dr. Death comes in. He's a house of fire. He gets Gordy up uh, and Gorilla presses him eight times into the top of the cage, which... um, was really impressive because Gordy's like over 300 pounds, so Doctor Death has got to be really strong to do that. I was surprised he did it to him once, eight times. Like, I bet uh, he's, I bet Doctor Death's really good at um bench presses or uh, what do you call them, pull-ups, chin-ups. Um So Samu is in next. We get a back suplex by Gordy on Williams, and then a double suplex by Gordy and Samu. Animal comes in and unloads on everyone um, for a while, basically for the entire two minute period, is just animals trying sequence here. Fasu comes in and um, the SST work over animal. Eton is just uh, kind of running on fumes by this point, he's been in there a long time. Uh, Stan Lane comes in and <clears throat> he really starts to use the cage now. Uh, Hayes is annoyed that he has to go in at this point. Um, so all through there's been this kind of narrative where Hayes like claims he's the next one going in but then chickens out basically, uh, which is kinda quite fun on the outside. <clears throat> I noticed that there's a surprising lack of blood so far, uh in this match. Hayes and ent- Hayes then does enter and DDTs all four faces straight away. Um and then struts on his own in the other ring. Uh then the crowd start chanting We want Hawk. Or were they chanting, we want blood? Did you hear this chant here, at this point? Was it blood or Hawk that they were saying?
1: I thought Hawk. Yeah, I thought Hawk too.
3: Right, okay. We want Hawk uh, at this point. Hawk does come in. Double clothesline on the SST from him. He unloads on Gordy. Slams Garvin. Um, Eaton then gets a DDT on Hayes. Lots Lots going on now, at this point. Everybody's in the match. Hawk um, hits uh, Garvin with a neckbreaker and then gets him in a hangman for the submission. So, Kelly, thoughts on war games?
2: Uh, yeah, it's another, you know, wow, how many matches in a row now have we had that are really fun? Um, this, not the best war games ever, but a lot of memorable spots in it. Um, I really liked Taze on the outside. You know, that was something I really remembered from watching it years ago was his his smack talk at uh, Bobby Eaton, the whole, you're scum, you're scum, Bobby Eaton. That was a <laughs> great and uh, the shut your mouth before I put my foot down your throat, you Baltimore puke, is an all-time great quote. <laughs> and, yeah, so it was. he was just so good, you know, just working the outside there and, and like you said, telling the story of him being, you know, You know, talking tough, but then when the time came for him to back it up, of course he was weaseling his way out of never getting into the cage. Yeah. Yeah, really good stuff from him. Um, The lack of blood uh, doesn't, I don't know if it would have made a difference. I'm wondering if uh, the main event was the only match they they authorized blood for, and even if that was maybe uh, unauthorized. I don't know, because you'd have thought there would have been blood in this.
3: I was thinking Matt. this might be a TBS thing, you know, like, no blood right.
2: type thing. Wasn't there a big crackdown at the end of 88 on blood, totally, I, or a total ban, right?
3: I have a feeling that Dusty Rhodes was fired because of a blood-related incident.
2: Right. right. I but could have that Spike wrong, could, but... Yeah. No, it's a good match. I mean, uh, Steve Williams is a guy that, and I really felt watching this match... Almost a Hacksaw Duggan type guy that, and, you know, Hacksaw Duggan, WWF, WCW Hacksaw Duggan is probably still my least favorite uh, wrestler babyface ever. I just, I don't know. I've never really got Steve Williams, um, but then again, I haven't watched a ton of what would be considered his best stuff in Japan. Um, love love the Midnight Express, um, so that's always good. Uh, The Road Warriors were pretty good flying around, especially Hawk with his dives from one ring to the next, almost out of control, you know, dangerous uh, spots where some guys I don't even think saw him coming, and he's just (laughs) flying over the ropes. But that's not surprising, I guess. Um,
3: There there was one, sorry to interrupt here, but there there was one little moment from Hawk that I didn't quite understand, which is that he kind of stops at one bit. This is quite late on. Terry Gordy is just kind of, like, standing there. He kind of looks at him and then decides, oh, I don't know, I can't be bothered to do anything with him, and then he goes in, back into the other ring. Did you see that? It was just...
2: Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, these, these, they're like battle royals, you know, these war games. Things are just, it's a lot of just improv, you know, do whatever, you know. Mm. Just, yeah, there's not a lot of structure to the bulk of the match, really, I don't think. Um, but yeah, no. Good good war games, uh, for sure. Definitely uh, not the best, but far from the worst.
3: Chad?
0: Now, uh, I think where I'm lower than most on the last match, I'm higher than most here. I thought this was uh, really great. Um, And kind of, I mean, war games is a gimmick I really love. So, I mean, honestly, this may be the fourth or fifth best war games for me. Uh, but that's pretty high praise. Uh, I thought this was a lot better than I remembered. A very uh, stiff action. Told a good story. The opening five minutes, I think this was by far the best. Uh, Jimmy Garvin's looked in his little comeback here between this and class seven. Uh, he was doing some uh, pretty stiff shots. Eaton was utilizing the cage, whether he was getting thrown into it or uh, at one point he kind of In this match, he delivers a kick using the cages like monkey bars where he elevates himself up. Uh, You had some fish hooks, uh, some just big power dudes laying into each other and coming in. Uh, And also a good payback spot where Hayes comes in and delivers
1: the DDT to everyone on the uh, Babyface side and then
0: at the end Eaton gives him a DDT which I really loved as a good uh, payback spot and uh even the choke at the end I thought was kind of unique and something that you don't see uh very much but actually looked kind of painful in the way that uh in the way that he elevated Garvin up with that choke and a uh, Garvin tap so I, I really really like this match a lot
3: yeah uh, <clears throat> i uh... So wh- one of the things I was thinking about is uh, how little, comparatively, they used the cage in this match compared to some of the other war games we've seen. Um, that's one little thing I thought about. Also, I forgot to mention as well. Uh, did you see? Um, did you hear this little snidey comment that Jim Ross uh, did at the start of the match when? Uh, Gar- Jimmy Garvin was it there, and he kind of forgot himself for a moment and called him J- gorgeous Jimmy Garvin. And then he said, "Oh, I don't think he's calling himself. I don't think he's gorgeous anymore." He says. "Yeah, yeah." <laughs> um, cool. it, just kind of like snarky Ross. Um, I I was one. Wonder- I spent a lot of the time wondering why nobody was bleeding. Um, although that could be, uh, that seemed conspicuous by its absence, I thought. I just took away from it a little bit. Um I also thought that uh um, I don't think I liked it as much as you Chad. It would be the bottom line. Um but I do think it's probably worth the four stars that Meltzer gives it here. So yeah, not a lot else to not a lot else to add. I I I thought that there were moments in the match, like that bit I mentioned, where Hawk was just kind of looking around, where <coughs> things felt a bit kind of um, guys didn't really know what they were going to do next, type thing. And it it, it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just those two, but uh, uh, Williams at certain points as well just looked kind of, looked like he'd run out of stuff to do at different bits. I was very impressed by his eight gorilla presses, though I have to say. Um... Yeah, I don't. I didn't think Stan Lane brought a lot to the match when he came in, so it it was kind of the Bobby Eaton show for the most part, wasn't it? Yeah. Um. Yeah, it was. It was good. I mean, you can't really go. You, the thing is with Wargames is it's structured in such a way that you can't really go wrong with it, um, if you're reasonably competent, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unless it's like Dungeon of Doom or whatever, like
2: the the three way one in WCW in the 98, I want to say.
3: Three teams. Yeah, yeah the three teams.
2: That's by far the worst one.
0: Yeah. That one sucks. I mean, I I mean, I, I mean, for the blood, uh, the lack of blood, I think, kind of sort of makes sense when you see the main event in some ways. Um, and then a, another reason it didn't bother me, I don't think as much, is I also really like the... Uh, 1994 war games, and that also doesn't have blood. I, I mean, I think blood is certainly something that I would welcome to a match like this, but I, I didn't lose hardly any effect that uh, nobody was bleeding in this match. Because I think with this one, it was more... uh about them taking kind of back bumps into the cage mm. or, uh, you know, getting Gorilla Plur slammed up into the cage, kind of big stiff shots or uh, or big bumps instead of maybe more of a uh, kind of raking of the face and more uh, face-to-the-cage type spots.
3: Yeah, no cheese grater tonight. Right. So, yeah, okay. But it was, good. I mean, basically it's, Another good match. Like we've had like four great matches in a row here. Um, and hot on the heels of that, we now we have the main. Oh no! Let's before going to the main event, I should mention the heels after the ring, after the match ha- uh, have Animal in the ring, uh, and then they try to lock the cage and attempt a five-on-one beat down on him. Uh, but before it really gets going, Hawk uh, breaks the door open and they bail. So that's how that one ends. Gordon Solis with Ric Flair, um, who is in full-on kind of subdued Starcade 83 Minnesota mode here, and uh, he feels that he's ready, basically. he's uh, In his mind, he is 120%. So I don't think there's much to say about this Flair promo here. He's in serious mood. The one thing I did note was, is this the moment, is this the interview that Loss, loss's uh, avatar is taken from. I don't
2: think so. No. I think that looks like a like even a, well, almost a 1970s Flair picture. I always thought when I saw it but that was very young Flair.
3: Right. Okay. I, I, I th- see. I, I thought that was young Flair as well, but I like yeah. if he there's a moment where he looks up and I, I saw shades of a uh, loss's avatar. Which he no longer well, has. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he no longer has it, which is uh, strange. Okay, we'll we'll be talking a lot soon, uh, in in a few weeks, on this show. Uh, ranked uh, number four uh, is Terry Funk, and he's coming to the ring with Gary Hart, which uh, Bob Ross and sorry Bob Coddle and Jim Ross are quite surprised to see Gary Hart coming out of here. What's that about? And he's taking on the world champion, Ric Flair, uh, for whom the crowd is just nuts here. He gets a massive uh, reaction when he comes out. So as this match starts, Flair goes after Funk uh, on the outside. Funk throws a chair in the ring. Flair eats the post. Funk gives Flair some uh, very contemptuous, disdainful-looking slaps before suplexing him into the ring. He chops his neck. Um, so clearly we know, everybody, like they've been talking for the whole show, that Funk is going to target Flair's neck here, um, to re-injure it, basically, after the, he's just coming back off his injury. Flair, uh, tries to suplex Funk, um, to, the back to the floor, but they take a tumble down. Uh, Chops back and forth now. Funk goes for a pile driver, but Flair back drops him out. Flair works on Funk's neck now with some nasty looking, uh, I want to say they're cranks, but they're kind of, I don't know how to call them really, but he kind of uh, jerks his neck and they look quite nasty. How would you call it? I, I, I don't know how, how to describe that.
0: Yeah, I think a neck crank's pretty appropriate. Crank, uh, yeah. Yeah, really, really uh, made look to look affected by the way Funk was selling them. Um, where he would kept pointing to his neck.
3: Yeah, and we we get a knee drop uh, from Flair now, and then again, which gets a two count. Now uh, Flair gets a pile driver on Funk, and then again, Funk's left arm looks like a noodle at this point. Um, so I don't like. What was the idea here? That the damage to the neck has kind of gone up the spine and hurt his arm. Like, what's the what was the idea of this arm? Yeah, I think he was there. having
0: kind of nerve, some like nerve effects from the uh, damage to his neck.
3: Yeah, it looked very effective. It looked like he'd really been hurt here. Um, now Flair pays back Funk with the contemptuous uh, slaps that we saw from earlier. We get back suplexed by Flair now, and he goes for the figure four. Funk grabs uh, a branding iron and nails Flair in the face with it. And he's busted open, so he's he's a bloody mess uh, already. We get a pile driver by Funk now, and uh, Funk goes outside and removes the blue mats to reveal the concrete, so you can see what he's planning. Now he goes for the pile driver outside, but Flair reverses it into the backdrop. Um, we get a neck breaker by Funk, and then again, and then again, so three neck breakers in a row, and uh, the crowd like kinda of goes silent at this point. They're, they're probably worried for Flair's uh, career here. And uh, Funk wants Flair to say I quit at this point. He, he's basically shouting at Flair and saying I want you to say that I give up. Uh, Flair manages to get the branding iron now and he hits uh, Funk on the top of his head with it and then he posts him. So Funk is bleeding himself now. Flair misses a knee um, and Funk goes for a spinning toe hold, so shades of uh, his brother here, Dory Funk Jr. Flair then uh, goes for a spinning toe hold of his own, but Funk reverses it into an inside cradle, which Flair then reverses himself, and that's it for the one, two, three. So let's get uh, before we get to the post-match here, let's get our thoughts on the match itself. And uh, Kelly, I'll go to you first.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's including the post match this is one of my all-time favorite matches. Um the actual match itself is is great because it's it's like the ultimate example of a grudge match um between the two of them. Um the blood this is a match where if they didn't have the blood I think it we you know it needed the blood, whereas the war games, not so much, maybe. This is one that definitely needed juice, and to have uh, double ju- uh, juice was was even better. Um, yeah, really great. This is my favorite match between the two of them, too. I, I do my- prefer this over the I quit match that comes later. Um, one thing I noted, just, you know, sort of random about how Funk, you know, it sort of speaks to just the little things that he does so well. Um, when they were brawling on the outside, Funk was always uh, always made sure to roll back into the ring to break up the count, you know. And that's one of the pet peeves I've always had as a, a fan. And, and today it doesn't even matter. But you know, one thing I totally hate is when two wrestlers are brawling on the outside, and the referee has to go to like, these extreme lengths to keep counting, or counting slower, or, or repeating numbers, or stopping. And it kind of makes him look like a jerk. And so, just a little thing like that showed that Funk, you know, he's got, you know, the little things so under control just to roll in and break up the count and then keep brawling and then just to roll back in, break up the count, brawl again. Um, yeah. And, and the finish was good too because it, it made it look like Funk could have won the match with just a little more luck, you know, like, or that it was lucky that Flair did win the match, right? Um, so it, um, it sets up perfect for rematches even though the, the baby face went over. In the first match, I mean, the the war is definitely not settled because of the finish, for sure.
3: Yeah, and uh, I just just reading Meltzer's comments here um, it, about the blood stuff. Apparently, blood just isn't a- allowed in Maryland. That it's uh, the athletic commission there doesn't allow blood, um, but the uh, basically they challenged the commission uh, before the card and won, so that they were allowed to put blood on just for this match basically. So um mm. that is uh that's the story there. Yeah, well that goes back
0: into why the uh why they stopped the eighty eight world title match between Flair and Luger.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well,
0: that was kind of the reason they gave was because of the athletic commission.
2: Right. I always wondered about that when I was younger because I knew that match, the Luger Flair match, ended because of the blood stoppage. And then watching this match and knowing it was from the same place, from Baltimore, I was wondering, you know, what happened to the uh, the no blood rule or the, that they'd stop the match if, if blood happened, you know. Yeah, so I guess there was an explanation.
3: Meltzer does say that that seeing the, seeing the juice uh, stunned the crowd into silence. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, Chad, what are your thoughts on this one?
0: Um, yeah, this is a classic match. Uh, really, one thing that I really... Uh, enjoy about watching this match chronologically with the shows we've watched is this is a world title match we have not seen before. Uh, besides maybe some cage matches, as far as kind of a sprawling uh, brawl that goes all around ringside has a very uh, chaotic feel. We've we've never seen that type of match as a world title match yet, uh, and the uh, the work here is done well. Um and with including the post match, this is one of my favorite uh segments in wrestling. I think this is a, a greatly booked match, uh, with a kind of clever finish that uh keeps keeps Funk strong um going into his future title uh challenging for the title and uh and makes Flair look like a really great baby face throughout this match. Uh, so there's not a whole lot to add. It's just a great, uh, great brawl with a lot of little kind of things mixed in. That uh, if anybody hasn't seen it, should uh, definitely seek out.
3: Right. So um, let me uh, get to the end of the post match here, and then then uh, I give my thoughts as well, and we can talk about whether or not this is a this is a five star affair, which I think it typically is thought of as being a five star match, right? We'll, we'll I mean, I mean uh,
0: yeah, I definitely think some people think of this as, like, a five-star match,
3: sure. Um, so, the great Muta comes out, and he, uh, and he mists Flair, basically, um, almost immediately. So, as the pinfall happens, Muta is basically there and waiting. Um, there's a heel beat down now, and, uh, they nail Flair with a belt. Um, Funk throws a chair into the ring. Doug Dillager comes out and uh, he gets nailed. And Flair is getting decimated by the heels here. So Sting comes out for the save. Um, Funk uh, throws a Flair at chair. Sorry, throw, throws a chair at Flair now. And uh, all the men uh, brawl back back uh, up the aisle. Um, when it looks like we're over, Muta attacks Flair again and a flight. A fight breaks out again, basically. So uh, Jim Ross and Bob Caudle kind of start wrapping up, and this fight breaks out again. And uh, Flair hits a branding iron. He gets the branding iron and nails the heels with it. Uh, Funk uh, comes back now out of nowhere again with a chair. Um, and uh, Jim Ross's voice is basically spent here, like he's been <laughs> shouting so much that he's he started to lose his voice. And uh, Flair is in full-on slick Rick mode now, and he says, I'm gonna dog you until I wear your Texas Arso, which I thought was a pretty good line. Uh, we're also told the TV title is being held up, and um, this is a, like, there are several times where it looks like this brawl is over and it restarts again. Uh, that's what happens in the post-match here. And it's pretty great. Would you agree, Chad?
1: Oh,
0: yeah, this is absolutely, to me, uh, I mean, the match to me is good, Uh, and again, using my kind of little caveat, I do rank the post-match as part of the segment here, because Flair and Funk are uh, are key uh, personnel involved in this brawl, uh, but it also brings in Sting and Muda, and I love the kind of pull aparts and then the, the rehashes of the brawl. It, it, felt kind of like a, a Memphis Tupelo concession stand out of control type situation, uh, to me where, uh, it, it's, it's, it's really something special that I don't think we've seen, uh, in the NWA. Even in the TV that I've seen, it's been sort of self-contained, uh, either in a studio or like, uh, in a cage where they, Attack Dusty, where the horsemen attack Dusty. That's confined within a steel cage. This was kind of scoping all across the arena, uh, and really felt like a wild scene.
3: Yeah, I mean, one thing I'll say about Terry Funk is that he gives you that feeling, doesn't he? That he could that he could be going off script. No, like he's got he brings that kind of anarchic element where you don't know if he's been told to throw those chairs in the ring or to go over the railings and jaw at the fact like he feels wild in a way that um in a way that isn't staged or isn't scripted in in any way do you know what I mean yeah. by that yeah absolutely when I was a kid yeah when I was a kid I thought
2: funk was real of all of them like yeah like his stuff and then I remember reading about this feud where it gets to the point where he uh Gets a, a plastic bag and tries to suffocate Flair. I can remember reading about this in the mags and just thinking, "What?" I mean, obviously, I don't know. I just, yeah, he's so real, like just totally, totally. I thought, yeah, of all the wrestlers, Funk's the only one that's actually wrestling or killing people. People.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, during that post match, there were several times where it felt like you know the Ross and Caudle thought that this was it, and Funk would. Do something to kickstart it again, as if like, okay. yeah, I do like that. As if like he's he's got his own page and uh, I I enjoy this match and I I would definitely give this whole segment five five stars if I was rating it. Would Would you go that high, Chad?
0: Yeah, I mean to me, it's a uh, five star segment overall.
3: It, is this up there with? The steamboat flare stuff—that's a, that's a question I'll ask cause I have seen people say that they would put Funk Flare over the steamboat matches. Um,
0: I mean, I, I, I mean, to me personally, I like this better than the Shy Town match. Uh, I know that for sure. Um, it's probably in the conversation with the uh, with the Wrestle War match for me. And then I'd have it slightly below the uh, below the Clash Six match, but that that gets into really to me uh, kind of pulling uh hair territory where it's it's very uh, very small difference between the you know the three or four matches.
3: Right, but they're all, they're all five star affairs in your mind, or you said four and three quarters for tri time, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean they're they're all uh, right around there so uh,
2: great, great
1: matches
3: Kenny, your your view on that
2: yeah i I would uh consider this match counting the brawl, like I counted all as one it was a good match. five stars, and I would put it ahead of the the flare Steamboat trilogy, but that's like Chad said that's splitting hairs that's just I love those matches too, but this one this one is always. You know, it's always been a match that I've had in the back of my mind for years and years. Um, after, you know, I saw it for the first time 20 years ago, and it's one I always, you know, thought of when I was I would show somebody a match or show somebody that you know watches WWF but or WWE and but doesn't watch other wrestling. This would be one I would always uh, throw in for them to see. It's one I've always recommended. There's just something to it. Uh, just and Funk, it's so good. Flair's so good, uh, uh, and, the, and the brawl just puts it over the extra the extra step. Um, yeah, definitely one of WCW's finest moments ever, as far as I'm concerned. Well, the whole show,
3: for sure. So, obviously, this is a fucking incredible show, and I don't swear very <laughs> often, but uh, it, it, <laughs> it, this warrants it, I think. Um, oh, yeah. Is it the greatest pay-per-view of all time? I, th- I think we, we'd be remiss not to ask that at some point during this. Is, is this the greatest pay-per-view for you, Kelly?
2: I think it's in the conversation. I, I don't know. It's up there. It's definitely my favorite WCW show, but I haven't seen a lot of the early shows in full. You know, I've seen the main events and some of the undercard stuff. I'm not sure what Came before this, that's considered on par, but or the clashes, the first clash of the champions, I guess, is one of them. Um, Spring Stampede's a really, really good WCW show, um, and then as far as like the WWF shows go, it's oh, I'm a WWF guy, but I don't, I don't know if the WWF ever put on a show with so many great matches just one after the next and with all the, the great names involved and the crowd was super heated and yeah oh, I am I, I don't want to make a definitive statement but it, it's it's in the very top of the top top level
3: Your view, Chad?
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that I want to watch uh, as we go through and watch like Spring Stampede 94 Slamboree 94 uh, even maybe Super Brawl 2. Uh,
3: mm. s- some of those
0: shows again, uh, but a- as of the shows we've watched so far, I think this is clearly uh, the best.
3: Yeah, I mean, t- t- basically the card from the tag match with the Steiners and Basti Club onwards. This is just, or great. you could even argue the
2: Cornette Dangerously match. Oh yeah, oh yeah, as yeah as actually,
3: a- from the Tuxedo match onwards. Yeah. This is just amazing, this show. I, yeah. I, I I there is nothing there that I wouldn't hold up and say this is really good. Um and arguably it's got one, two, three, four, five matches that are three and a half stars or above. Arguably. You could say. Yeah. So that's that's pretty good. Um now, what I don't know about is WWE cards from the past, like ten years. That's what I don't know about.
2: Um, well, if, if we're talking, there's a couple money. that come to mind. Chad would have the same ones, I'm sure. Uh, the Money in the Bank from 2011 and uh, Extreme Rules from last year were very, very good with, you know, almost top to bottom type awesome lineups. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean those are uh certainly uh, great shows as well. Um I don't know, but yeah, this one's up there. Uh, I think with any of them. And I I mean, I honestly think the main event to me is what uh what really pushes it and uh both money in the bank and uh and um extreme rules from last year also have that very iconic classic main events. Yeah. that I think really kind of set them maybe uh, apart from some of the other ones in the crowd uh, because of the greatness of the main event.
3: Right, okay. So we're saying it's up there, but we're not willing to say it. It's definitely the best show we've watched so far, Chad, without doubt. Right? Yeah, yeah. I
0: don't I don't. want to say like definitively this is the best pay-per-view of all time, but, I think if you're having a conversation, this one certainly should uh you should take a, a long, hard look at this match so
1: yeah
3: all or right at well, this
0: show.
1: excuse me
3: I think we got we've got to the time now where we ask uh for match of the night. I don't think there's a, gonna be much uh, dispute here uh we all going for funk flare, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the the uh, nineteen eighty nine match of the uh, match of the night conversation has not been very good so far. Chad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I,
0: I mean, honestly, thinking about the shows coming up ahead, I don't really see uh see that changing except for maybe Starcade. Starcade might be different, but uh, with our next three shows, I'd be surprised if we have a different match of the night. <laughs>
3: um, but MVP is a more uh, interesting question, I think. So we'll, we'll go with you, uh, Kelly. You're the guest here.
2: Thanks. Well, it came down to Flair Funk for me, and I, I gave it to Flair. Basically, the tiebreaker being... I mean, he's really great in the brawl. So is Funk. But Flair's really, really good in that brawl, too. But then the final tiebreaker, I guess, would be the promo with him covered in blood and green mist. Which is, you know, an all-time Greek Flair image. So for me, it's it's Flair by a hair over phone.
3: Chad, which way are you going? Um,
0: I actually, uh, Kelly could have spoken for me with everything he just said. I, I uh, will also go with Flair for all the same reasons he gave. I I did like that Flair still came out to the ring with the uh, women, <laughs> so like more yeah. women. I thought that was nice. <laughs> uh, I always. I know i said this before, but I always hate, like, if somebody turns and then all of a sudden they're a different character, Yeah. kind of yeah. like how the Miz is now, that now all of a sudden he's this, you know, happy-go-lucky goofball uh, baby babyface, uh, but Flair, you know, he kept the flamboyant side and the uh, Nature Boy persona up, uh, and he, he, you know, both of them were fabulous, but uh, I give the edge to Flair,
3: slightly. So, so, I feel like I do this every single week now, where it's Flair versus someone else, and I go with the other guy. Like, i pick picked Steamboat for all of the trilogy. Um, but I'm going to go with Funk, uh, because um, he, because of that element where he feels like he could be going off-script here, and nobody quite knows. And I liked, like, lots of little things that he did. Uh, I also like the kind of um, the the way that, as well as being this wild man, he's also a great technical wrestler as well, which is often forgotten about. But like there were callbacks to seventy stuff, basically when he was doing the yeah. the spinning toe hold, and um, it, yeah, it, it 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 felt like there were moments in this match where it had historical importance as well, which uh, Funk brought to him. So I'm going to go with Funk. Uh, there, um, although I, I would, I, for me, Ricky Steamboat is in the conversation. I thought he was really good in that match, um, as well. I, I, I thought he was um, very motivated uh, in that match, so I did an honourable mention for him too. Yeah. So this is actually quite difficult. Billy Graham Award winner. In fact, it's not. I've just thought of somebody.
2: But, um, yeah, it's not for me. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you going to go with? I'm going with uh, Psycho, Psycho Sid, or just Sid at this time. Sid. And I know he had a bad back, okay, but ugh, he was the one that stood out for me. Just has anyone worked two matches in one night and and done less than? <laughs> than <Sid has? laughs> Talk about it, an easy night. And then it pissed me off the the playing to the crowd. You know, you know, yeah. not even trying to be a heel. You know, yeah, screw you, Sid. Billy Graham for you. <laughs> Chad uh,
0: I'm actually going with psycho's partner
2: <laughs> Spivey.
3: and
0: then that that may be uh that may be a kind of situation where uh Sid didn't work as hard, but he kind of worked smarter maybe uh because i mean sp- sp- Spivey to me looked like a liability out there he was dumping people in their skull, kind of just flying <laughs> around. Uh, it didn't, didn't look uh, very responsible. Uh, Sid did nothing, so it's kind of whether you want somebody to do nothing or to do something uh, badly, perform something bad. So uh, I'll go with Spivey.
3: Um, do you know, uh, Chad, the worst part of that is that you know that in his own mind, Spivey thought he had a good night. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like I, I reckon Spivey probably went back and thought, yeah... I'm
0: oh, well, I'm, I'm sure. I, not only Spivey, I bet Sid thought. Uh, Sid was probably asking to get a world title shot. Yeah. I mean, just knowing Sid's ego and stuff like that, I'm sure, with, like, <laughs> proud crowd chanting for him, oh, I'm sure that was a huge uh, ego boost for him. So, uh, they uh, probably both thought they stole the
1: show.
3: <laughs> so, are there any cont- other contenders here? Teddy Long's teeth uh then his kicks teddy his long's kicks. teddy long's crown <laughs> Ted, <laughs> in fact teddy long had a pretty bad night all all in actually he's a he's a contender uh i'm gonna say um uh, no i'm gonna i'm gonna have to go with the obvious here i thought sib was awful Sib was awful tonight um and considering um how much the crowd were- rooting for him like he didn't have any reason to do so little, you know? Like, he, okay, he had a bad back, but come on, come on, man. Like <laughs> One clothesline and tag out. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> and had a bad clothesline, too. Uh, and uh, his, his selling was atrocious, as well.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that was a non-factor for, uh, uh, for him.
3: All right, now, 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 Chad, you and I are going to have to come clean. We are awful at doing comments. <laughs> but, uh, we've bailed on doing comments, th- three shows in a row now, and I think we're going to do it again.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, do, we'll have to do it, uh, guess, comment show, cer- certainly on The Clash, I think we can, uh, work out some time, but, uh, I mean, I think this show has a lot to really analyze, and it's a very interesting show, uh. And a lot of stuff where you kind of have to look at it from a historical all time perspective, too, which we don't get on a lot of these shows because yeah. it really is one of the greatest pay per views of all time.
1: So,
3: Well, while I'll do it, I'll try to get this out and the Clash uh, 7 show out reasonably quickly um, to give people a chance to listen and uh, comment and stuff so that when we do do Clash 8, we will actually uh, spend, you know, five minutes or something and. Uh, read out what people have said. Okay, because I think it's all going all the way back to Clash 6 now that we haven't read any comments out yet. Yeah, (laughs)
2: yeah.
3: All right, well, Kelly, do you have a good time? Do you enjoy doing this?
2: Yeah, this is great. Uh, Hopefully, uh, the first of uh, maybe uh, several, who knows, you have a lot of shows to go through still. Yeah. I was thinking almost I should do as just a payback for having to do, you know, just strolling in here and doing (laughs) one of the best shows ever. I'll do uh, the 91 Bash, which is... uh, one of the the worst shows ever, I guess. Two yeah, years
3: you, later, you, you're welcome to '92 Havoc as well.
2: <laughs> which one? '92 Havoc? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's some. Yeah, there's some bad ones in that time. Oh, there's
3: '91 Havoc as well.
2: Uh, is
3: uh, whoa, whoa, I mean, whoa, 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 whoa! No, yeah. '91 Havoc is amazing. <laughs> which is which is the one with Abby in the uh, in the electric That's the '91 Havoc, yeah. and that's going to
0: be a strong match of the night contender. <laughs>
3: Yeah, probably. (laughs) God. Alright. Well, guys. So you got Lost lined up for a show coming up? uh, So Charles, uh, Lost, the uh, leader of PWO, I guess, is coming on for Starcade, right? Yeah, Starcade 89. And WrestleWar90. So a double header for him. Uh, but I think we have uh, we have another guest lined up for, there's, there's still another, is there a Halloween Havoc this year? Yep, you Halloween know? Havoc
0: 89, the first one.
3: Yeah, so uh, a little bit, still a little bit to go uh, there, um, mm-hmm. but I, I look forward to it, because uh, he, he is, uh, if, you, if you don't read, if you listen to this and don't read uh, Pro Wrestling Only, Lost is a guy uh, who, whose posts you should read. Um, yeah. they're, they're, I think his posts are as good as any kind of, like, column or anything that you'd read elsewhere. Yeah. Would you agree Yeah, with
2: that? it's amazing, really. It's, yeah, well, so well thought out.
3: Uh, all right, guys, well, th- thanks uh, thanks a lot for this, and, uh, yeah, thanks for listening to Where the Big boys Play.
0: Yeah, thank you, everybody. Thanks. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts, and the American Dream Dusty Roads. I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.